Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. It is Joan Esposito's show. However, Joan's not back till Monday. I'm Tori Ryder in for the last time this week. It's been a lovely two weeks with you. Uh, and we are uh, a sort of our grand exit. We've planned a lovely group of people for you to meet today, including uh, local executive director at Shalva Chicago. That is a domestic abuse um Refuge for Women, Services for Women, to talk about this article um, that I was, well, was in the New York Times and I was unaware, and perhaps you were also unaware. We touched on this with, with Tom Appel a little bit when we talked about the connected car, but your connected car can be endangering you if you are in a dangerous relationship. So we'll talk about that a little bit. I'm thrilled that uh, we will get a chance to find out about the new wolves being raised, being released into the wild in Colorado. Um, so many cool things to talk about. The mayor of Woodstock is going to talk about what he's facing when the migrant buses are coming through and just throwing people at the town of Woodstock uh, and how they've tried to manage it, look after these folks. All of this coming up today. Um, interesting to see that Wayne LaPierre, that's the big news just coming across, uh, that Wayne LaPierre is leaving the NRA. And if you, I, I just want to stipulate here, nobody's views on guns change unless someone they know is shot. I, I realize that. And I don't want to change anybody's opinion about what weapons you should or shouldn't be able to own here and now. But it is interesting that it was Wayne LaPierre um, who really steered almost like a, a, a big cruise ship. It doesn't turn on a dime. It turns slowly. And he's really the guy who uh, who captained that ship as it as it shifted. I mean, yes, there was Charlton Heston, and yes, they were already activists on your right to own any gun, any place, any time. Um, but he's he was the face of the NRA and its political donations and its ranking of politicians. And as someone who is a common sense advocate for gun ownership, I don't think nobody should own guns. I think some people... Uh, really need to own guns. I think some people reasonably own guns. I think that uh, here in the city, we're sort of in a little bubble and we don't understand why people in the country own guns. Uh, But Wayne LaPierre, in addition to the big expose about how he spent the organization's money, he tanked perfectly wonderful politicians with his rating system. People who had a moderate attitude, just a moderate attitude on gun ownership, the kind of attitude that every research organization you will ever find shows most Americans have. Most Americans, you know, I think no matter how passionate a gun fan you may be, I think most Americans would agree that um, if you want to own a, a weapon, it's not unreasonable for you to have some safety training. It's not unreasonable for you to have to have uh, safe storage and to be responsible if you don't safely store your gun. It's not unreasonable 
uh, to do a background check to treat gun owning a little bit more like we treat driving. Nobody says you can't drive unless you have a history of misbehavior behind the wheel. If you have a mis, if, if you have a history of, of, uh, driving while intoxicated, you lose your license. If you have a history of, uh, stalking, you might, might lose your privileges as far as where you can drive, like not around the person you're stalking. These, these are, Privileges, And I understand that, you know, we can go on about the Second Amendment. It's your right. But even our rights often come with restrictions. You have the right to say just about anything you want, except in certain circumstances. You're not allowed to threaten somebody's life. You're not allowed to, you know, harass somebody in certain circumstances. You're not allowed to... Uh, they're, they're, even the rights that you have, every other right that you have, and yet Wayne LaPierre was such a good marketer, such a black and white, you know, there is no gray area here. He actually managed time and time again to punish people who were moderates who were middle of the road on these sorts of issues, who wanted, I think what a lot of people would say is common sense rules. I always wondered. So, yeah, I don't want to talk about guns. I want to talk about the NRA a little bit. I always wondered why more moderate gun owners didn't join the NRA and steer it the other direction. It seemed like a no-brainer to me that if you were um, a sporting gun owner and you were uh I mean, I know a lot of people who own a lot of guns, ranging from their grandpa's old shotgun, which one of my girlfriends says is a great deterrent. People recognize that sound. People recognize the sound of a shotgun being readied for fire. She said, just the sound. Um, I have a friend who divorced a dangerous guy and um, for her divorce party, her decor was all the targets that she shot when she went through firearms training after she bought herself a handgun. Uh, and she is, you know, has gun safe. I have a girlfriend who lived alone in a nice part of L.A., but it's L.A., and she always had a handgun. And when I'd come down to visit with the kids, she'd say, I just want you to know that I, the gun is in the gun safe. I have a friend who, for fun, has an assault rifle. He shoots at a range, and he spent probably... a. a a good couple weeks salary on proper safe storage for it. I know a lot of people who own a lot of guns, and I don't think one of them would have been a fan of Wayne LaPierre, especially when it turned out that he was spending an, how do we put this, an F-150's worth of the organization's money on his haberdashery and other questionable expenses do you think that his resignation is perhaps going to make space for new leadership that would steer the organization in, in a more mainstream direction? Is that possible now? Or again, are we in such a divided situation that there is no moderate view possible on this? As they used to sing in, what was it, Oklahoma, all or nothing? Is it all or nothing for us? And it was 8 Annie, in case you're wondering. With me, it's all or nothing. 
I wonder if the NRA is all or nothing at this point or if it's salvageable because when it was, and I remember a little bit of the tail end of when it was, um, a safety organization, they did great stuff. They ran uh, safe safe ownership classes. They had target practices. They had, um, they had all kinds of, of things they did for the public good, and their agenda wasn't to sink anyone who ran for office. It wasn't 100% like, yes, you could have a nuclear weapon in your garage. It's your right to own a rocket launcher in your garage. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you take my point. Phone number here is 773-763-WCPT. You can text. I know it's Friday. Maybe you're getting ready to head out for the weekend. Maybe you're trying to wrap up your work a little early so you can get out for the weekend. So a great way to weigh in on these um, conversations is to just shoot a quick text over here and uh, give your thoughts. I particularly like to hear from you if you are uh, owner and user of a gun of some description. And if you feel that Wayne LaPierre's NRA represented you, I, I would warrant you that there are more gun owners who do not feel that the NRA represents them than gun owners who do. And I'm I'm just trying to sort of, because it was just announced that, that he was uh, resigning, I'm trying to remember the, the various uh, tentacles of the scandal of the NRA. I, I think part of it involved Oliver North. Um, they were paying him to do ads. They were paying all kinds of people essentially for because they liked them. And they were sinking all kinds of politicians because they didn't like them. And earlier this week, we had uh, the writer and investigator Dashka Slater on to talk about the need for progressives to learn to compromise, that you can work together on one issue, even if you disagree passionately about others. And it seemed like there was an opportunity for the NRA to work with people who were passionate about learning their weapons, using their weapons, caring for their weapons for sporting purposes or hunting purposes or even defense purposes. And that's why a lot of people own weapons now, but they want to be responsible. And the whole idea that you had to be all in for the NRA to to countenance your election and the number of excellent candidates that they worked actively, actively to destroy because they wanted uh, these because the candidates wanted some sort of reasonable solution to a kid with a history of mental illness being able to walk in and buy or have a parent buy, as we saw in Highland Park, um, a series of truly destructive weapons. By the way, on the subject of Highland Park, there is news out of our uh, suburb. Uh, the the young man who is um, charged with the murders of, I'm trying to remember how many, pe- numerous innocent people, children, parents in Highland Park, uh, 4th of July, a couple of years back, has decided that he would like an attorney after all. He does not wish to represent himself, he's decided. You, I mean, just if he's going for an insanity defense, I just have to say the fact that he persisted in insisting he wanted to represent himself 
would be an excellent stratagem. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not crazy. I allegedly stood on top of this building, gunned down innocent civilians at a 4th of July parade, and I want to represent myself. And my father's already in trouble for buying me the gun. Uh, Yeah, that would be, maybe, maybe he's being clever that way. Maybe he figures if he's trying to look like a Fruit Loop, this'll do it. Because if you followed the story at all and you saw that he did want to represent himself, my guess is you thought he really is nuts. And maybe that's the whole point. Maybe the whole point is that he really is nuts. It's Joan Esposito's show. I am Tory Ryder. In for Joan. It's just about 17 minutes after 2 o'clock. Join me on the chat. Join me on the phone. 773-763-WCPT. Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. If you uh, are just joining us, we're talking a little bit about the resignation of Wayne LaPierre, who has run the NRA for... I'm looking up the exact number if I can find it. A long time, we could say. A long, long time. And uh, they've lost, get this, a million members, according to the trace. The new financial documents that were released um, this year show that they they've really they've really been disintegrating before your very eyes one of the reasons being their stance after the sandy hook massacre that's when uh Wayne LaPierre's private statements hit the public pretty hard he's been in charge for um and about 10, I want to say 10 years, maybe longer. I, I will have to get that exact number for you. But uh, the financial collapse of the NRA is in large part due to, um, well, I, you can't, you, you'd have to lay it right at Wayne LaPierre's feet. According to the Trace, uh, a lot of the last 10 years, they had pretty stable membership, about 5 million. But then the story broke in the trace of these perks that were going to LaPierre and his buddies. And members did what members will do when they don't like how their money's being spent. They quit sending it. I mean, it's not like you have to join the NRA to own a gun. So they didn't. So they didn't. So they were down about a million members. And they're still falling. And and even though more people are buying weapons, people really bought them during the pandemic. I'm, I'm not, I don't know why. I really, it just seemed like, I don't know, you're stuck at home. What, you need something to do? Where, where are you practicing if you buy a gun during the pandemic while you're stuck at home? That part made no sense to me. Uh, dissident NRA board member Phil Journey, who was a critic of Wayne LaPierre, said they have destroyed the NRA brand. They have lost credibility. Well, that's the question. What was their brand? What is their brand? Can they save their brand? Because I believe what 
we could really use in this country is an organization for reasonable, sane gun ownership. And and that we could discuss what that looks like. But the idea that you, there are just no rules. I mean, just imagine if you lived in a city where there were just no traffic rules at all. You could go as fast as you wanted. You could turn where you wanted. You could stop maybe if you felt like it. It, it was bas- basically if the city of Chicago were one big drunk driving um, bumper car show. Like, how would that work for you? It would not. And that is, in my opinion, how the NRA has sort of been addressing the issue of gun ownership. Anything you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, as much as you want. And it was uh, New York Attorney General Letitia James, same woman who has brought the suits against Donald Trump. She brought a suit against the NRA that alleged that Wayne LaPierre had looted the NRA's assets for their own benefit in violation of nonprofit laws. It's always the money that gets you, isn't it? Isn't it funny? You can do just about any kind of disgusting thing you want, but the money, they nail them on the money every time. That's what they're going to go after for, uh, that's how they're going to get Donald Trump. Really? I was just reading, maybe you saw this morning, that it is possible that he may be banned from participating in the real estate industry forever. That'd be kind of nice. I wouldn't mind that. Let him focus on his other businesses. Steaks, phony baloney university training. I don't know, what else would he do? Oh, yeah, president, right. He, he he wasn't one of your more engaged leaders. If he could have a big fancy state dinner and get people to stay in his hotel, uh, then, he was, then he was in. But other than getting charges dismissed against himself if he runs... I'm not sure what he'd like to do this time. Once he gets through with his his few days of new fascism and dictatorship, what do you suppose, just while we're on the subject, what do you suppose Donald Trump would do in a second term after he got through getting himself off the hook? What what would that look like? I mean, he's his new best friend in North Korea. I don't know. They're going to be such buddy buddies anymore. I suppose he could hang out with Putin. Maybe. I don't know what he would do in his second term after the first two weeks. And you know what? He probably hasn't thought it through either. After the first two weeks, after I fire everybody in the Justice Department, dismiss my own charges, free the January 6th rioters, uh, then what would he do? Let's go to Roosevelt in Chicago. Hi, Roosevelt. Welcome. Nice to speak with you. Tori, Tori, Tori. Yes. Remember that movie, Torah, Torah, Torah? Can we can, yeah, can, can we get to the point here? Okay, I'm sorry. I'm trying to be funny. Happy New Year, first of all. No, I want to now, be rude. now you're on the second of all. What's the third of all? Okay, the third of all. I wonder how long they, the NRA got uh, Russian money. Remember that spy Maria Batina or something to that oh, effect? Yeah, yeah, Butin, yes, yes. The one who hung around Butina. with various political leaders and uh, tried to to Im- implicate them in her various activities. Yes, I do. Bingo. So before they, they caught her, 
and they arrested her. I wonder how long they've been getting money from Russia and other countries, such as what was discovered yesterday about Trump. He got $7.8 million from 20 different countries, according to Washington Post. And the top of the list, is China. Yeah, that was really that was really something to read that um, the biggest because (laughs) funny you should mention this. I sat down with a friend about a year and a half ago and we sort of challenged each other to say something nice about our our preferred party. He he is a Trump fan. And he, he asked me if I could say anything nice about Trump. And I said, well, I thought at least he got a vaccine out there. My friend is an anti-vaxxer, so he grimaced at that. And I said, and I was very proud of Trump for actually pointing out that China is eating our lunch. And now it turns out that Donald Trump was feasting on uh, China's lunch. So uh, a good point. Um, back to the NRA discussion, though, it was Maria, whatever the heck her name was, um, who was actually cozying up to a lot of uh, NRA people. That's true. And she posed as an activist for uh, the NRA and gun owners. That is one way she wormed her way in. Good good remembering job there, Roosevelt. I can count on you. Um, yes, that's true. All kinds of unsavory doings around there. The uh, the analysis of the trace, the people who broke the original scandal about the NRA, uh, pointed out that um, they only itemize the federal, the FEC, what is that, Federal Election Commission, only itemizes donations if you give more than $200. But even doing only that, the uh, the donor base was way, way down. So maybe we don't have to wait for the NRA to revive itself and get back on a, a reasonable path. Maybe it'll just do like somebody throwing a bucket of water on the Wicked Witch of the West. Maybe it'll just melt away. A little pile of ash. A little pile of wet gunpowder. Could happen. 228, I'm Tory Ryder. WCPT, live, local, and progressive. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Surrey Ryder. 2.30, it is the Joan Esposito Show. Joan is back on Monday. I am touring with you, writer like the truck. And yes, you can find me even when I'm not here uh, on my podcast or in my book or on my socials. But speaking of being findable, I was shocked to discover in the New York Times that your car can rat you out to an abusive partner no matter what you try to do, unless you have perhaps a whole lot of money to undo what car manufacturers are just sort of doing automatically, and that is making you traceable and findable. So to speak about this is uh, a woman who heads an organization that I personally hold in very high regard. It's called Shalva, and uh, it is an organization to aid people, not just women, but people who are in jeopardy from domestic violence. Uh, welcome, Marlene. Thank you so much for joining us on WCPT. Hello, Tori. Thank you for having me. And thank you for all the work that you do. I actually know uh, at least one person uh, who has benefited from wow. from the skills that you... Yeah, um, 
people you wouldn't necessarily expect know people who have used your services. And I certainly know at least at least one person who has been a beneficiary. And I'll just full disclosure, uh, we're we're also supporters. So um, and that was why I thought of you. Thank you. It's good to to be able to support you. And and so I I thought of you when I read this New York Times article yesterday um, that indicated that if you own a car with your spouse and you're trying to flee your spouse um, and your car has all kinds of, of communication software, your spouse may know exactly where you are and what you're doing and have access to right. not just your your motion, but your actual car. I'm assuming none of this was new information to you. You want to explain it a little bit better than I just did? Well, I think you did a very good job, but I'll, I'll try to try to um, elaborate it on elaborate on it a little bit. Um, like other forms of gender-based violence, intimate, intimate partner abuse um, uh, and, and intimate partner stalking is not new. And advances in technology have given abusers really dangerous new tools for um, uh, being able to do the power and control over their um, over their victims and cars. And technology are just one of the newest things. Certainly telephones have been used um, in the same way for many, many years. Um, And uh, and, and, and other forms of of technology. The the technology in these new cars, though, is certainly creating a a new set of of, uh, fears. Yes. For, for the our survivors. Well, I, I mean, the, the the thing that was just hair raising for me, I understand that uh, phones are trackable for better or for worse, sometimes for better. You know, you want to know where your kid is or, or right. something bad happens. But in the event that you're fleeing an abusive relationship with not a lot of money, it's possible to dump your old phone and go get a burner phone. You, you can do that. Mm-hmm. But your car... Um, you you may have spent all your money on this new car. You may be living out of the new car if you're really running. And uh, you can't just walk into a CVS and buy another car. So what are some of the things that um, that the manufacturers are saying about disabling these tracking applications? Mm-hmm. Well, it's um, like you read in the New York Times article, there isn't a whole lot that we're really able to do right now. Um, unlike the phones, um, there was a, recently the, there was a federal law called the Safe Connections Act that allows victims of domestic abuse to easily sever their phone from accounts that are shared with abusers. Um, there should be a similar law that's extended to cars. It's even referred to in the article, um, but it doesn't exist now. So the um, really the only way that that I have that I'm aware of that um, it can be changed is to um, actually physically go in and, and disconnect things, and that means you're also losing control um, or and access to other services and features of the car, um, or simply getting a new car, which for many of our um, many domestic abuse victims they they don't have the means to do it. So. Um, there really isn't a good answer for what what we can do right now. And the car, I mean, in this 
a New York Times piece, the car manufacturers essentially just wash their hands of this and they say, well, you know, how do we even know that this is accurate? How do we even know? Uh, I know. Where have we heard this before? How do we even know that the woman is telling the truth? Um, oh, um, <laughs> I know. It's, it's, it's horrifying. horrifying. It's horrifying to hear that. Um I have uh, a couple staff members that went to a, um, a summit that was sponsored by the National Network to End Dom- Domestic Violence and then EDB this past summer. Um, it was their technology summit that they hold annually. And uh, we learned of unbelievable ways that that abusers are using the things that, in, that are in someone's home, the things that, you know, the, the nest. To control your your air conditioning and your and your security system and your heat, um, abusers are using those tool things as well as tools to um, to victimize uh, their partners. There are some companies, some technology companies that are um, doing better than others to improve security in their applications. Um, particularly online applications like like Uber and Facebook, um, malware bites. The uh, um, that, that that's the, a security that the cookies and things. Yes, right, the security things. Yes, um, they, they are they're trying to do more to build in safeguards into their applications, uh, but there's there's just not a whole lot that's really available to people right now with the cars and I can only imagine what's next um, you know there's technology everywhere you go in your refrigerator and everything else yeah, um, yeah. that would but, be horrifying uh, uh, well let me pause you for a moment <laughs> to, if people haven't seen the the piece you mentioned the ways that people's connected homes can be made into tools for violence against them or harassment against them mm-hmm. in this article I'm I'm always amazed at the devilry that people can get up to with, with enough oh. time and ingenuity and desire to make uh, misery. What, one of the things they pointed out was that with all those um, uh, features that are accessible to control your car by remote, they were doing things like in hot weather, turning up the, the woman's heat in her car so that she basically was frying in there. That was one. Um, it goes beyond just knowing where you are. One guy uh, apparently tracked his his ex around, and when she was at the home of a of a new friend who was male, he contacted mm-hmm. the the man. He tracked the car. He knew the address, right. and and I must say that the most scary piece, the piece of the piece, was when it turned out that this guy, who was, I believe, a member of the Border Patrol, so he was armed then, was an armed officer, Mm -hmm. uh, he killed himself. And so many times when the worst happens to domestic violence, um, uh, domestic violence co-inhabitors, I guess, is the best way to to Mm -hmm. say it for me, um, that that when there is killing done, it's a murder and a suicide. And I just thought, well, and this is probably me and my my darkest. Well, thank God it was just a suicide and not a murder and a suicide, because yeah. that's what you typically see, right? Right. Yeah. We've, there's there's stories every day in the news um, of violence that happens. The, the 
the most extreme that you can imagine. And um, our uh, one of the services, the, one of the primary services that Shava offers is clinical support to victims, um, so we like to say survivors, of um, intimate partner violence and abuse. And what we're seeing more and more often is that the stories of these women, um, there's, there's much more fear for their physical safety in their homes. Um, gun violence has certainly heightened um, our fears there, and it's, it's more so than we've ever seen at, at another point in time. I, I'm interested to hear that um, in the case of your support services, you are hearing more about weapons in the home. Are the women also arming themselves? I'm, I guess I'm extra curious because we were just talking about Wayne LaPierre yeah. and the NRA. Um, Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I was listening um, to the to the end of um, your last section. Um, yes, um, and that that certainly makes some of the the the, um, the thoughts around gun control that 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 plays into um, the perspective of people who are, are are dealing with this, wanting to protect themselves and also fear for what may happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, if there's always that moment of hesitation, if you're not a trained uh, user of a weapon, I think it's very, very hard to to figure out what you really would do if you ever needed for some reason to, to take that gun out. What would you ultimately do? So let's go back to the connected car. Mm-hmm. Um, what can I mean? OK, theoretically. If the car manufacturers wanted to, they could produce cars that could be turned off, turned on, uh, re, they could boot somebody off the connection if they wanted to. What should people who want to support these partners uh, who are in violent situations, what should we be asking for? Uh, what kinds of legislation should we be looking to see that would force these manufacturers to disconnect somebody with, with a restraining order, from, for example, mm-hmm. uh, from accessing a car, even if that person, we're going to say he just for simplicity here, yeah. e- even if he's on the title, what can we do? I mean, you can ban somebody from a house, even if he's on the title. Why can't we ban somebody from tracking a car, even if he's on the title? Well, Tori, I'm not a lawyer, so um, I, I don't know the, the extent of um, of what our rights are in that regard. What I will say is that we need a similar law to the Safe Connections Act, so that if um, an individual is um, has a shared account, shared ownership on the car, shared, um, you know, has signed a lease together, that there's a way to sever that relationship um, with certain amount, certain amount of proof that you would take, whether there's an order of protection or, or um, whatever um, requirements there might be. We should have the same thing associated with, um, with car ownership. And um, what I would say is for women right now who are in this situation, what they want um, more than anything is to make sure that they can have access to those accounts, that their names are on the mobile device where they can get it severed, not to have um, – uh, I imagine that it's going to be easier legally if both names are on that lease for the car or or, uh, or, or whatever the ownership is, if both – 
if both uh, partners are on are listed as owners of the um, of the car, that it's easier to to take some sort of action. Um, in uh, in the case of the the woman in the article, it was only her um, on the I don't know if it was a lease or the uh, the title of the car, so that made it much more difficult. I will also say that um, whenever a woman comes to Shalva and and they're meeting with one of our one of our therapists, the first thing we talk about is their safety and making sure that there's a safety plan in place, thinking about all the different contingencies um, that that they might need to take into consideration if they're for one if they find, someone were to find out that they were in therapy or anything else. Um, and any other place, place that um, that might threaten their individual safety. And so I would say the same kind of concerns have to be taken into consideration before any changes to the car are made, um, before you take the car to, um, to, to an auto repair place or to the dealership to have anything disabled physically. Mm-hmm. Please make sure that you are talking to the police um, and that, um, that or, uh, to, to law enforcement, so that you're, you've, you've, you know what you're going to be, that you're setting yourself up um, for the abuser to to get upset about something. So let, let me pause These you the there. For, can be triggering for a second. Yes, the triggering effect is something you want to consider. So. Um, and, and I think you just slightly misspoke. The woman who was in the article had a great deal of difficulty uh, gaining control of her vehicle because she was not on the title. And, and oh, well, right, right, right. And, I'm and sorry. Yes, I did. This. So I, I also yeah, want to point out that, uh, and I think you would agree with me here, in a situation where it's all about power and control, it becomes that much harder to be on the title of the car. Uh, you might be told, oh, I'll take care. Why would you want to bother about that? It's I'm the one earning all the money around here. I'll put my name on the my credits better, whatever reason you get. So um, moving aside from that, when a woman comes in, usually a woman for counseling or assistance, do you talk to her before she shows up at a place and say, you know, park, your car may be tracked? If you Do you ask what kind of car she has? Do you ask if she knows whether the car has tracking software on it? Do you inquire, you know, park park like a few blocks away? Um, how, how do you advise women before they meet with you? Um, we we recognize that um, that any woman who's coming to to our offices mm-hmm. in person mm-hmm. um, is taking somewhat of a risk. Uh, our, the location of our offices is not disclosed. Um, you, you can't find our address anywhere. So, if they were, if um, a woman were to come um, to the Shalva offices for help, uh, there wouldn't be anything identifying uh, where they were. Um, so, so. From that perspective, they are they are safe. That's a lot of our clients yes. will actually not come in person for that reason, though, as well, because they just don't want to be tracked. They don't want to be questioned on how to, where did you spend the last hour of your day. So we will provide therapy and support. Um, we do it over Zoom. We do it over the telephone. We have women who um, are... They're they're talking to one of our therapists while they're they're standing in the drive-through line, 
um, or while one of their kids are in dance lessons or whatever, because that's the safe time for them to be away from the house. Right. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll do what we can to make sure that um, when a woman is coming to us for help, that we can keep them as safe as possible. I was just reminded of a story from my own life. This wasn't someone I knew directly, but someone who knew someone uh, who mm-hmm. was in another state and was um, at the at the whim of a very controlling and dangerous man. And she, it turned out, was pregnant with a, a baby that was going to have profound defects and possibly not not survive and she wished to terminate the pregnancy and of course you can imagine that the the controlling partner did not wish this to happen so what's fascinating to me is people don't seem to be aware of how vulnerable they are electronically um my suggestion was that she go to a state where she didn't have to wait for the procedure. And my suggestion was that she park the car far away and then take, you know, leave her phone in the car at a, you know, distance from the train station and then take, and that people don't believe that you really can be tracked. She brought a relative with her and I said, leave all your phones in the car. Just get on the train and go with no phones. No, you can always go up to a stranger and say, you know, I lost my phone. I forgot my phone or buy a burner phone. Money wasn't a problem. People don't believe sometimes that that things can be tracked in the way that they can. And so, of course, she left her phone, but the relative didn't believe that that was possible, brought the phone and he found them. Um and that that yeah, it was not good. Um he found them a little bit too late, but it was not I mean it was ugly. It was really bad. And there was violence. And it just people don't believe how easy it is to follow somebody around now with all the technology is that's out there. Do you find running Shalva that you have to demonstrate to people that it really is true that this person can stalk you on your phone, on your car? Or are they willing to believe it now? Oh, well, um I think those that are experiencing it personally certainly are, are believers. Uh, we we are starting to do more and become more aware of the fact that it's part of what our responsibility is, is as an organization is to try to educate our clients more about what the possibilities are. Um, in 2019, the national the NNEDV. National Network to End Domestic Violence found that 71% of domestic abusers monitor survivors' device activities through devices, and 54% um, download stockware onto their devices. So uh, part of our responsibility as an organization is to educate the community about about these trends, um, to educate our clients. and I think that we all need to become more savvy about what um, what we need to to do to protect ourselves. Um, so it's something we're still learning um, as a, as a DV agency. Uh, we're it's it's hard to stay ahead of it of it all, um, but we're looking for opportunities to um, provide more and more of that guidance to our clients, and like I said, to educate the community about what these possibilities are. Yeah, I hadn't even as someone whose new car is a 2005. I, I was completely <laughs> astonished. Yeah, the other car's an '86. So I I, I in a way I. 
I think I personally, just speaking personally, I'm like, yeah, my old car. Yeah, nobody can find me. Good for me, my 13-year-old, whatever it is. It's, um, it's a good reason to be proud of the fact that you're too cheap to buy a new car. <laughs> uh, but in all honesty, most people don't find it a badge of honor to be driving a 20-year-old car around. <laughs> and uh, And they want the newest and they want the best and they want all of the convenience and the features. And as you point out, it's really hard to stay ahead of the of the technology and know what it can do and know how to undo some of the of the other edge of that sword. So you did mention the severability um, issue that you're working on, that you've you've had success with phones. What was the process that that enabled uh, this victory that enabled you to go to the manufacturers or what, what did that look like? I didn't even know about it. So tell us about that, um, please. You know, honestly, I, I wish I knew more about, um, about what the, the, the process was. Um, I think that it's just, we all own them now and um, it's, it's, it's so prevalent to own a cell phone. It's, it's imperative that, it, I mean, every one of these victims has these phones. It, unfortunately, what happens is you have the legislation passed after the horrible things happen, right? Yes. yes. Um, and and I, I think that's that's most likely what happened is that we just started hearing more and more stories. Um, you know, there's there's the the issue with air tags that the, they put on cars. Oh yeah. Um, who would ever have thought that you know the thing that the the Apple tag that you put in your luggage to, to track, make sure you get your luggage safely after a trip can be put on somebody's car. Well, now there's legislation um, in Illinois. Um, Illinois prohibits installing those location tracking devices on a motor vehicle without someone's consent. And it happened after it's ha- after it happens to someone. It actually happened to a member of my family. Um, oh, boy. Someone who, yeah. And uh, it was, it was really scary. Once we figured out where all these tags were hidden, uh, there was more than one on the vehicle. There was more than one. Yes. See? Well, on the vehicle and yes, clothing and oh my gosh. <laughs> See, like this that. is the thing. Like when someone is really demented, and and you know, I would say that people who are abusers are unwell um, for in lots of ways. Um, I, I think that if they've dedicated their entire life to, to controlling somebody, uh, it's really hard to even imagine all the things that they might do until you see it and you go, holy smokes, I didn't know that you could do this with that. Um, yeah, I, I and every time well, I mean, yes, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say I, that you earlier you actually gave the definition of um, of domestic abuse, and it's it's a systematic pattern of power and control for the purposes of manipulating a partner. And these tools are just tools in their tool belt. And you know, the, the we think that it's it's only connected to mental health, um, but it's it's. The, the things that create these, the situation for um, a domestic violence situation, it's it's not just somebody who needs to go to therapy. There's usually deeper things that are connected. Oh, yeah. I'm not I don't mean to say that a few years of therapy and yep, you're good. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't. Um, 
No, I, I would never say that. And I think it's a no, no. I, you didn't. You, you didn't say that. I'm just. <laughs> I, I'm. I'm making a, a, a broader statement. Good. That, yes. Because um, it, often, well, you'll have, it's not uncommon to uh, for people for someone to suggest, well, to go for um, couples therapy with your partner who's who's um, trying to manipulate you, and it's just you'll, it's something that you can work out together. No, therapy doesn't no, work in no. Domestic violence. stay away from that whole thing, says I, the completely unqualified therapist here. Yeah, as long, <laughs> as, long as I have you on. Yeah, it's, you know, it's really difficult as a caring and concerned person. Uh, sometimes it's it's important for you to say, you know what, I, I'm not getting in that tagged car with you. I'm not. Uh, I, there's only so much I can do. And that's another thing. I think there are sometimes people with really good intentions who get in the way. I'll, I'll never forget there was a, a, I was participating in a in a how to say this with with. Uh, appropriate anonymity here. I was participating in an anonymous fellowship to support somebody in my life and to, and ultimately, of course, learned that what I needed to do was, was make myself get better. Uh, because that's often the way it works. And in the course of these meetings, I met a woman who was really in a bad situation and she needed rides and she needed whatever she needed. And I was just about to give her a, a, a regular ride home, not just a one-time ride home. And somebody pulled me up short and said, how do you know that her dangerous husband doesn't have a weapon and that you're not going to be in the line of fire? And I had to stop because, in fact, her dangerous husband did have a weapon and I could very easily have been in the line of fire. So I think that organizations like yours are are much better suited to assist people in these situations. And I just want to flag for people who are listening that if you know somebody um, you can direct them to Shalva and, and probably whatever's going on in their home, you can't fix yourself Um and I just I want to put that in there because the idea of standing between someone and her abuser is not not a good place to be standing um, because Sorry, they, I would they, I would they don't care. I'd love to make a little plug um, on our website. Sure. Um, there uh, there's a set of tools that we call show you care and it's specifically for the friends and family that are concerned about someone. Um, it's to help them figure out what they need to do, what they should say, how they can help in a safe and supportive way. Oh. Um, so I would encourage people to, to go to our website and, and check that, and that out. If, that's if, you, Shalva, if there's someone you care about. Shalva.org. Shalva. Yes. So it's Shalva Cares. ShalvaCares.org. And that's spelled S-H-A-L-V-A-C-A-R-E-S dot org. I, I think that that is a great idea that you, you put that up there and people can be helpful without becoming endangered themselves, um, which is really, I mean, the only thing worse than not being able to help would be if you went down on that ship, that would be 
That would be worse. Right. And, and it, it could happen. So just with the moment that we have left, um, did you see that the uh, Olympian, Special Olympian, who was convicted of killing in South Africa, his girlfriend got out of jail today? Did you see that, Jacob? Uh, I did not Pistorius. He's out of jail. And uh, he's on home, I guess, confinement in South Africa. It's been it's a story. We'll keep watching it. But, yeah, he shot his girlfriend, Riva Steenkamp, through the bathroom door and claimed that he thought it was a burglar. And to your point, he's like he's going to go through counseling. Um, But he hasn't even admitted that he's a domestic abuser yet. So, huh. Huh. It's very scary. Thank you for being willing to to come and talk about this very important issue and the tech that goes along uh, with making this so extra scary right now. And I'll I'll send anybody who asks right to your website. Thanks for the work that you do. Thank you. It is. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Just about three o'clock, the Joan Esposito Show, WCPT, live, local and progressive. Zito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Surrey Ryder. It is. I am. It's the Joan Esposito Show. I am Turi Ryder. And thank you for being with me um, so far this week. The last couple of weeks, it has been a pleasure. Although I understand that I have depressed the living daylights out of some of you. This text just came in. Uh, your story yesterday about your husband finding the toddler in the parking lot one Christmas made me so depressed. Just in general this week, I've been so sad about the state of humankind. When I told my husband your story last night, we both just cried. It is really sad. If you missed the show yesterday, uh, the very, very short version was we found a sort of an abandoned toddler in, in the city park near our house. And uh, he came from a disaster of a family. And when the police finally brought found, located someone uh, to come and get him, uh, the grandmother's boyfriend, who was, I think, at that point, at least 10 years younger than we were, um, it, it was horrible to realize what we were sending him back to. That That is the story that's being referenced here. However, there are things you can do. Uh, and you can't do everything, but you can do something. So on the other hand, there are women like Katharina, whom you met on the show these past couple of weeks, who, along with some of her friends, just took it upon herself to start providing food to people who were at police stations and is, and she and her uh, cohort are now providing warm clothing to people who are in the shelters. There's there's always some small thing you can do. And uh, it's kind of the Hillary Clinton that takes a village. If we all participate in our various ways, um, we can we can make some progress. That is my if I didn't believe that I couldn't come in here and sit here and do this work. Um, in response to the text, I, I also want to say this. We've got an election coming up just yesterday. You probably got an email uh, from your local board of elections saying, would you like an absentee ballot? Or a vote by vote by mail, whatever you call it. And it used to be that when our kids were little, we took great pride in walking them in with us to see us vote. But the kids are grown now, and voting by mail means that you can walk a precinct somewhere. You can make some phone calls on Election Day. You can go to a purple state and help turn it blue. Uh, or in the case of the last couple of elections, I went with friends to 
a suburban district that was in play. And we got Sean Caston elected, which, as far as I'm concerned, has been fantastic. But let me tell you a little bit about the process of walking in the cold weather before a November election. You have these really interesting conversations. You get door slammed in your face a lot. You see some disturbing bumper stickers. You get a lot of people who are nervous. But the most meaningful conversations or interactions that you may have if you are knocking on people's doors saying, have you received your vote by mail ballot? Have you returned it? You know, you can drop it off on election day. The most meaningful conversations you may have are with people who don't think it matters. I remember I was walking in a subdivision and this subdivision, it was really, it was, it was fascinating in DuPage County um, at the, at the outskirts of this subdivision were the more modestly priced attached townhomes. They were nice. They, they just were modest. And then as you made your way into the subdivision, the houses got progressively fancier. So one door that I knocked on in one of the fancier houses, this this woman came to the, took her a while to make her way to the door, but I could hear somebody coming and she shows up in what I always imagined in my judgmental inner soul was the attire of a hardcore Trump supporter. That's just what I pictured, right? She comes to the, do you want me to describe what I thought she would, you're going to be mad at me, but she was wearing like a pink track suit and her after work slippers and she had her blonde hair up in a high ponytail and she looked like I imagined because I'm wrong a lot. I'm just going to stipulate that I am wrong a lot. And I, I rang the bell. She opened the door and I said, have you, have you voted yet? She hadn't specified how she was playing to vote. She goes, oh, you bet I am. I'm just so sick of this. And she went on for 20 seconds about how disgusted she was with Donald Trump. And I thought, well, I'll just like the old uh, GPS navigation, recalculating, recalculating. But then I knocked on the door of someone in a townhouse and she, I could hear the noise. It sounded like 60 kids in there. Even though she, she said, I have both my grandchildren with me. It sounded like both my grandchildren to the power of 20 back there. Um, and I said, have you, I, I, it says here, requested a mail ballot. Have you got your ballot? God, oh, it's around here somewhere, but I don't really see what a difference it would make. And I said, well, if we get control of the Congress, we can have hearings we can expose the president for the nefarious things that he's doing to our government. And she said, huh, she said, I guess I better find that then. It's in the kitchen somewhere. And I think when you when you don't lose hope and you make small changes or you you connect with people. There was a family where the the mother was going to be uh, voting for the first time because she was a new citizen and the kids wanted to know what that meant. And the father said he would explain it when their mother got home. It's exciting. It, it's, it makes a difference uh, in a small way. You know, I'll tell you another story and then get back to your texts here. But did I say, oh, someone's pointed out, I said Jacob Astorias, the musician. No, no, I don't mean, no, I don't mean the musician. 
Oh, Lord. That'd be quite an accomplishment if he was released from prison because he's been dead for 40 years. Oh, my gosh. Did I? I'm show, Now you know I'm secretly a jazz fan. Uh, sorry. No. What is his first name? The, the athlete. Oscar. Thank you, Oscar. Oh, no wonder I didn't want to say my great uncle's name was Oscar. I just blotted out Chaco's stories. Just, just, just kill me now. Just now. Just put me out of my misery. Why didn't you stop me, Paul? It was so quick. I was about to say it, oh, but you were wrapping gosh. up your segment. Okay. No, it's Oscar Pistorius who shot Riva Steenkamp through the bathroom door in South Africa. And he just got out of jail last night in South Africa without ever having admitted that it was a domestic violence incident. And I'm, I'm <laughs> all right, back to the difference you can make. So here's where I figured out that you could make a difference in a small way. Do you remember uh, Judge Abner Mikva? He got on the wrong side of the daily machine in Chicago, the original daily, and they redistricted him and they districted him so that he, he was a congressperson and he lost. So the next election, he got busy and in a very non-democratic suburb, he ran in his new district, a district that hadn't really been kindly disposed toward Democrats, never mind progressives, which he without a doubt was. And he won. And I had walked precincts for him in the rain. And I remember attending his victory party. And it seemed like he had won by a fairly comfortable margin. But instead, he said to us, you know, I won by three votes for per precinct. If you average it out, it was three votes per precinct. And probably every one of you volunteers can think of three votes that you brought in, that you gave a lift to, that you helped sign up for an absentee ballot. Three votes. Each of you probably helped me get those three votes. And so each and every one of you is responsible for the victory. And that made an impression. So person who texted to me. Person who texted to me and said that we are we are beyond sad. Okay, be beyond sad. But fix, 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 fix. Uh, let's go to more of your text. The computer is just kind of leisurely today. Leisurely, leisurely. Uh, this came in, I guess, just after I left the studio yesterday. Um, I have seen a school principal and social worker try to help a student who was suffering and had parents threatened to sue. Some suffering children are under the radar. Some are not. Or they, yeah, that's true. So, some of them you can't tell. Some of them you can't tell. And then you, you know, when they grow up with help, with luck, they get help before it goes on to the next generation. Because when you suffer as a child, it sticks with you. It doesn't go away. It stays. Like the memory of the fact that I just misnamed Oscar Pistorius will stay with me probably for the rest of the shift, and then it will go away. Just about 17 minutes after 3 o'clock, I am Tory Ryder in for Joan Esposito. Um, and, and in a little bit, uh, you're going to have an opportunity to hear about something that was really exciting. It should really excite you if you like wildlife because it's a, it's a big achievement. We will be talking wolves in about 10 minutes or so on WCPT. I'm Tori Ryder in for Joan Esposito. Practice your howling now.
Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Oh, sweet. Just about 19 minutes after 3 o'clock, I am Tori Ryder in for Joan. And uh, at the controls, Paul helping put everything together, Julia Shu, uh, making it possible for me to be here, Matt and Mark. So thanks to all of them. Joan will be back Monday, 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 Monday. If you've been waiting, 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 uh, you will get a chance to to reunite with your favorite talk show host. Although perhaps... On that list of favorites, maybe of more than one, maybe Patty Vasquez is on the list and she'll be in just after five to drive you home. So we've been talking about uh, with with uh, with you who have been texting about your experiences of making change and also about privacy. I got an article uh, from Dave. Um, he texted me an article about we, we don't have uh, control of our data. We were talking about this with Tom Appel. Was it last week? The week before? We were talking about the cars that were coming down the figurative highway as opposed to the literal highway, although they may be coming down the literal highway near you. Um, while we're on the subject of cars, his muskiness just had to recall some huge number of vehicles in China. I, I think I wrote down the number that he had to. He had to recall 1.6 million cars in China because, according to the piece that I read, um, drivers might be tempted to misuse the autopilot function. So this conversation about. Um, cars that are a little too smart and therefore a little too dangerous. This has been happening in the States for a while. But in China, when the Chinese government says, fix your car or you don't get to sell your car here, you better do it. Totalitarianism has has its strong points in, in this instance, in this one little instance. Uh, in China, they can make Elon Musk fix his Teslas. It's a little harder to do that here because first you have to prove that there really is a problem and it's the manufacturer's fault and that they can fix it and therefore should. So um, credit where credit is due. Let's also be clear that China has reasons right now for demanding things of Tesla. China has its own electric vehicle manufacturing concern. And just recently, they released their sales figures, which eclipsed those of Tesla. For the first time, Tesla is not number one. China's manufacturer of electric vehicles, which has some initials. I can't remember what they are. Uh, IBP, it sounds like in vitro fertilization, but it's not. And since I wrecked Oscar Pistorius's name, I'm reluctant to guess. Paul may look that up for me. But the point is that uh, the connected car, anything that people can connect, they can disconnect. And Tesla, I test drove one before Elon Musk sufficiently alarmed and aggravated me before he bought Twitter. Before he started coming out as a an anti-Semite and an anti-liberal and an anti, when he when he was just sort of a really interesting genius in one area who felt tempted to 
believe his own PR that he was a genius in every area. Um, before that happened, I, I test drove a Tesla and it really was interesting how they were pitching the capacity to upgrade software that you could pay extra for software that just automatically updated. And I thought to myself, and I may be wrong, this is a scam because if it has the capacity to automatically update, it's just a matter of them deciding to turn it off or on. And sure enough, the guy said, well, if you don't pay for it now, you can pay for it later. More. It'll cost you more if you don't get it initially. If you pay for it initially, then you get all these updates just automatically. But if you want all the updates and you don't buy it now, then you have to pay more for it later. So what you learn from this test drive experience is that they can do whatever the heck they want. They can update it anytime they want. They can fix it. And China, never thought I'd say this, has finally got has got it right and we've got it wrong. You can force these manufacturers with, if nothing else, market clout to fix the problem. And therefore, we could assume that they could fix the privacy problem too if they wanted to. Another example, or if you made them, never mind if they want to. Uh, this is happening in Europe with privacy. We haven't gotten... Uh, sufficiently riled or smart or active about it here, but in Europe, and they're starting to uh, demand that a little of the snooping and the spying be illegal. And you're seeing small hints of it in uh, state legislation. Like if you're, if you're ordering this from California, be advised this won't work. Or if you're ordering this from California, you have the right to turn off X and Y and Z data gathering function. Have you seen this on your computer if you download something where it says, uh, you, you know, everybody else suffers, Californians, you get the express lane. Everybody else, we're scooping up your data. It reminds me of that camp song. Did you, you know, I, I guess you know this about me. I'm a fan of the of the summer camp song. Do you remember, you're going to think I'm completely nuts. Do you remember Little Rabbit Foo-Foo? Paul, do you remember Little Rabbit Foo-Foo? Hopping through the forest, yes. beating up on the field mice? No, he scoops up the field mice and pops them on the head. Mm-hmm. That's how you feel with your data on a lot of these down. You feel like one of the field mice is being scooped up and bopped on the head. But in California... They don't scoop you up and bop you on the head because they passed a law. And Elon Musk can upgrade his software so that it it doesn't do the thing that it's been doing and lull people into a false sense of high technology will take care of everything. And if they wanted to, it is my firmly held belief that the car manufacturers who are scooping up your data and bopping you on the head could turn it off and reprogram it so that whoever is stalking you no longer has the ability to do that if they wanted to. But they'll never want to, so we have to make them want to. And that's why very long way of saying. And that 
that's why when you get that email from the Secretary of State or whoever it is that says, would you like to vote by mail? And you're sending me a message saying, I don't know, I'm, I'm losing heart. There's nothing I can do. You say, yes, I'll vote by mail. And then I'm going to go freeze my tush off and walk some precinct or make some phone calls. Or I still think that I sent a whole lot of really pointless postcards, but what the heck? Maybe, maybe it helped one person. Just about 327. I'm Tori Ryder. It's the Joan Esposito Show. In a moment, I am thrilled. I'm going to find out more about wolves, more wild wolves, more wild wolves. That's like a nice chant, isn't it? More wild wolves, more wild wolves in a few moments on WCPT Live Local and Progressive. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Oh, sweet. <clears throat> yes, it is sweet. I'm not, but it is. Uh, very glad to be here, really. This is my last day of the two-week run, because Joan comes back on Monday. If you want to keep in contact, you can do that. Just Google my name. And all kinds of things, the podcast, the book, the audio book, the socials, it all comes up. So easy to find me. Unlike wild wolves, those have been really, really hard to find. But five more wolves have just been released a few days ago in Colorado. And I got so excited when I read about it that we got on the case. Julia Shu found me the person who can speak about the program. Please meet Colorado Parks Wildlife Wolf Conservation Program Manager. It's a long title. Eric O'Dell, welcome. You're on WCPT. Do you have a business card that fits that whole thing on there? Uh, it's folded in half, actually. You have to fold it in half to, to see the whole thing. In I would imagine so. That is a long title, but then it's a really important job. These five wolves, they were released how many days ago into the wilds of Colorado? Yeah, actually, it, we're, we're up to 10. We've, yes. we've released 10 wolves uh, into, into Colorado, and this all happened the week just before Christmas is when we did this. I love this. The first five went out how long ago? Longer ago than these five. A, a year ago? How long uh, ago? No, no, no. Every, everything happened within the, during that week, the, the oh. week of the December 17th to the, to the 22nd, I believe oh. it was. Oh, see, I was under the impression that the five had been hanging out doing their thing, and then the coast was clear. You got to put out five more. Tell me about the program. These wolves are coming from Oregon. Is that right? Yeah, so so I work with Colorado Parks and Wildlife. That's a state wildlife agency, and and for the last several years, we have been in the process of developing a plan to how to restore wolves and, and reestablish a wolf population in the state. And the reason we're doing that is because there was a vote. That's, that we, Colorado is a state where citizens can gather enough signatures on a petition, and that uh, put a vote on the November 2020 ballot, and uh, it passed. And and so that required our agency and our Parks and Wildlife Commission to develop a plan to restore wolves. So it's really something that's been going on for, for several years. It was, you know, really kind of began back in 2020. And uh, we had a plan that was approved in May of 23. And, and since that time, we've been working real hard to, to do what we accomplished last week, which was to get those first 10 wolves on the ground. And were they originally part of the same family unit or are they from different family units, these 10? Yeah, really good question. We the, the the family unit of wolves is called a pack, and, and typically a pack is the the breeding animals, 
you know, a male and female, and, and then, of course, their, their offspring from, from that year and, and maybe the other year. And so um, we intentionally did not take all of the animals from the same pack. We, we wanted to have some genetic diversity in, in the initial population, and so we took animals from, I think, a total of four or five different packs from, from Oregon. Wow, I did, I'm impressed that there are that many different packs. I lived in Oregon when we all followed the saga of this one wolf that came down looking to start a new pack, and um, it was a, it was really sad. It was like the worst dating app in the world, this poor lonely wolf. was like nobody was swiping left or swiping right. There were no dates for him. So this way you've made sure that wolves that want to breed have somebody who isn't their aunt. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, right. that's right. That's, so that's what we wanted to have. Is, is, and it's, it's kind of the natural biology of wolves. And they get to a, you know that one or two-year-old age, more like that two-year-old age, they start to disperse from their packs to, to find mates and, and to pair and then to defend their own territories and, and that kind of stuff. So, so the animals that we selected for uh, the, the reintroductions were those of that age. You know, not, not pups. We didn't want the really young ones because they're not well-trained in terms of hunting and, and able to survive on their own. So it's, year, it's the yearlings, the animals that were born, um, not this spring, but the spring before. So spring of 23, 2023 or the spring of 2022. So it, one, almost two, almost three-year-old animals to, to bring in. What was the, once upon a time in Colorado, what did the wolf population look like? And how did it come to decline to virtually zero? Yeah, well, it, it did decline to zero for for sure, and, and I don't know I don't know numbers. We, nobody was really doing a very good job at estimating how big the population of, of wolves was in the state. But what I can say is that they're they're habitat generalists, and and they don't have a really specific kind of requirement for for where they live. They just need to have adequate prey, which is typically our native ungulate herds, which are deer and our elk and moose now as well. And so um, historically, wolves were in all four corners of the state, from the eastern grasslands to the high mountains to the western shrubland habitat type. So they were they were in all of the counties throughout all of Colorado historically. The and same then, species uh, in all four corners or different kinds of wolves? Yeah, so good question. They're, the Wolves are all the same species. There's different subspecies of, of wolves. Okay, so, let me revise. Um, were these all the same subspecies of wolves or were they all, all uh, different? Yeah, it's it. The, it's a it's a complicated answer to that, and the, the reason that it's complicated is because there's the the view of the taxonomy of wolves has changed a lot over uh-huh. time. But generally, the the subspecies that were here historically are very very similar to the wolves that that are now being reintroduced. But the, the subspecies that were here historically are are, are not around at, at this point. They've they've either been subsumed into other subspecies, and so it's it's kind of a complicated story okay. there. But, All right. Well, I won't um, poke but, too much at that. So they were everywhere, and. And then yeah. I, I'm, I know that there were bounties on them and there was a perception that they were a huge hazard to uh, people who wanted to ranch and farm. Um, so, so what happened to the wolves? Yeah, it was a very intentional effort to to remove wolves from the landscape, not and not just wolves, but all all predators to to the landscape because of that that perception of of competition and, and depredation and so on. So there were very active uh, campaigns to to eliminate wolves and, and and other predators from from the landscape, and it was done through hunting and bounties and poisoning and and things like that. 
those those types of activities are no longer allowed, and, and so uh, those threats aren't aren't currently there. But that's why the wolf populations that were very robust throughout not just Colorado but all of the West were were reduced to to certainly reduced to zero in Colorado. There, you know, the last time that we knew a wild wolf was in Colorado before uh, some of these recent movements of wolves from the north was in the, the mid 1940s. That was the last time that we uh, that had has confirmation been, of a, a that's wolf. That's been a long time. So I'm sure imagining. Has that there was some pushback. I'm imagining there were some people who said, no, 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 no. We we did a great job getting the wolves out of here. We don't want them back. So what did that conversation look like? The, was there a compromise? Was there outreach? What, what happened? Yeah, great, great question. I've, I've worked on a bunch of different species as a wildlife biologist for the state, and there's nothing as polarizing as wolves. People have really, really strong opinions one way or the other. There are those that, that are really in favor of wolves and really work hard to, to advocate for wolves, and then there are those that, that really dislike the idea of, of sharing the landscape with wolves and, and work hard to, to try to make that as challenging as possible. And so um, there's there's all kinds of opinions on, on it. And so we began the process as we began the process to develop this plan. We convened several meetings, public meetings throughout the state. Uh, we convened a, a stakeholder group that represented that whole spectrum of perceptions on, on wolves and, and really tried to seek out where where people could get along and, and where, where could we find some of that middle ground. And I think what we ultimately re, re, ended up with in terms of the plan was a plan that not everybody is entirely happy about. There's, there's something that the wolf advocates are not really pleased with, and there's something that the, the ranchers and, and others that, that have um, a dislike for wolves are, are not going to be entirely happy with either. And so um, it was a lot of compromise. It was three years of, of conversations and discussions at local levels with individuals, with with trade groups, with politicians and, and politically appointed people and uh, really came down to a lot of just hard conversations to, to think about how we were going to do this. And, and this was not a, a, an effort that was initiated by the agency. This was an effort that was initiated, like I said earlier, by the, by the voters of, of Colorado. So the, 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 the voters said, this is what you should do. And so we took that, that mandate in mind and, and really worked hard to develop a plan that would both satisfy the needs of the, the ranchers and provide some compensation when there's depredation, as well as working uh. to establish a, a wolf population. Okay, so now you're moving to, so now I'm starting to understand, uh, you didn't just say, okay, the, the citizens in Denver want this, so you ranchers, you're just going to have to suffer, because obviously, you know, if, if if they really are unhappy, they can go out there and do some serious damage to your wolves. You don't want that. That would be the worst case scenario. So it's incumbent upon you to be um, a gentle consensus builder, more or less. And it sounds like one of the things you did was to assure the ranchers that if if there's damage to their herd, that there will be some responsibility on the part of the uh, wildlife service. And I guess that's our money. So are the Coloradans money. Is that, is that how you did it? Like, don't worry if something happens, we'll be responsible. That's, that's, that's part of it. Yeah. I mean, when we, when we began the conversations and, and you're right, I mean, that the population centers of Colorado, if you're not familiar with the geography are along the front range, the Eastern slope of the Rocky mountains. And, and that runs in the, you know, through the Denver Metro area and, and many of the other cities along the front range. And so the, the, the vast majority of the, 
vote support was from that. All of the reintroductions happened on the west slope, west of the continental divide in, in much more rural parts of, of the state. And so as we were developing this plan, one of our, our kind of sayings, or one of our, our real important mindsets was that we didn't want to do it to the western slope. We wanted to do it with the western slope. And mm-hmm. so we, we worked very intentionally to, to try to understand what those, those concerns were. And we did develop a, a a fairly generous compensation program. So if there are confirmed wolf depredations on livestock, um, and we will, we will pay uh, to, to cover those financial losses. And, and that's one thing. It, in, in covering financial losses is an important thing. There's many other aspects that, that are challenging to, to the, the ranching communities what as well. Are, I mean, there's an emotional of, charge. Uh, I was going to ask, what are, other than losing livestock, what were the things that they were, I don't want to say afraid of, but what were their concerns other than, there go my sheep, there go my cattle, they're, they're, it's going to be a huge loss. It's already hard to, to be in um, agriculture or ranching. Um, what, what, what else were they worried about? Yeah, I mean, so so part of it's the financial side of things. They've got a lot of investment, they, and they care deeply about the animals that they that they raise. And mm-hmm. so, you know, there's there's an emotional attachment to those animals and to their industry. There's a a genetic investment that they've made to establish those herds to be what they are. And so there's there's those kinds of things. I think there's also the sentiment of decisions being made that affect them by by people that are not being affected by the decisions, right? So, so the West Slope did certainly feel, and, and that's a generalization, but many in the West Slope did feel that the, the decision to reintroduce wolves was not their want, not their desire. It was the desire of the front range. And so there's just this, this feeling of, of you know, losing out on, on that part of the decision. And so you know, we, we work hard to try to, to, you know, to find the ways to make the, this happen, make what we're mandated to do in the most um, gentle way and in the most uh, appropriate way as, as possible to address their, their concerns. Is there any way that you can say to the folks on, on the western side of the state, there are some advantages to having the wolves back in your neighborhood? Or, or is it just straight, now we can't claim that, it's just not true? Well, there, there's there's some ideas that that wolves, you know, it, it, we are restoring a species, a native species that was extirpated by the state. So there, some will argue that there's a, a, a philosophical charge to to do something good to to restore the the balance of the ecosystem. Some will say that you know, there's there's a several YouTube videos that circulate that show how wolves have this effect on rivers and, and all of these different things, which I think is very much overstated, very oversimplified. The, the general gist of that is that if you reintroduce wolves, that will affect the behavior of prey and that will affect the, the growth of vegetation and you'll get you know, increased songbirds and butterflies. That's a very simplified <laughs> way that, that, it, that it plays that. out. In it'll, be like, it'll be like a Disney movie. You'll have Snow White with little right. butterflies and bluebirds that talk to her. And, oh, yeah, okay, I can see. I can see some people claiming that it will be like Disneyland if you bring back the wolves, then it'll be kumbaya. Um, yeah. And it's a terrible oversimplification. It's, it's, it's not nearly that that simple. Okay. And, and so, you know, we... There, the, <laughs> That, that's one of the arguments that people make, but I think it has to be tempered a little bit, too. Okay. So let me move to some of the mechanics of of making the wolves move. I, I saw, I don't even know where, I saw some nature video of rangers, you know, counting the pups and watching the pack. But what did it look like for 
for the wildlife experts of Oregon to select these wolves? And have they been watching them a while? And how did they move them? Did they fly them? Did they? I'm just curious. How does it happen that you move ten? They're not small wolves. They're they're big. Um, at they're least, big animals. That's yeah. Right. So uh, I say this as someone who regularly has German Shepherd dogs that would be dwarfed by these animals. Um, how do you do it? So it's it's a it's a process, and and we we work with our counterparts in in Oregon at the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, and they they've been monitoring their wolf population for for many many years, and so they have ideas as to where those animals are and and what the productivity of each of those packs has been, and where there might be animals that are acceptable for us to to take to use to reestablish a population. So there's lots of conversations with my counterpart and biologists in in Oregon to to figure out where those packs are, and once we we've identified the packs that are, are are good candidates to support um, that you know that, that taking some of the animals away from those packs is not going to harm those packs because that's one of the first things that we want to do when we're doing a reintroduction is not to cause more harm to the to the source population. It's kind of the wolf so we, Hippocratic we oath there: do no that's harm. Right. Right. That's right. Got it. Yeah. So once we once we've identified those packs, then we then we use a helicopter to to try to track down those animals. And, and many of the animals in those packs have collars that that emit a radio signal. So it's we can use a, a receiver to, to get those signals and f- locate where those packs are. And then we, we um, fly around and, and isolate those animals and then tranquilize them with a, with a dart. Oh, my and gosh. We take wait, those wait. Animals. All, all my years of watching Mutual Omaha's, of Omaha's Wild Kingdom as a child, this is really what you do? You, you tranquilize them? Ah, thank you, Merle Ol- Merlin Olson. Okay, so, we, that's, that's so right. you shoot them with the tranquilizer gun. It really is a thing. And then how long does it take for them to fall asleep, the poor little things? Just a matter of minutes. It's, it's, a, it's a very quick-acting medication and, and puts them out. And then we, we take them back and we measure them and we put a collar on them. We collect some tissue samples and hair samples and you know, measure their leg length and their foot length and their all different kinds of, of body measurements, weigh them, and then we put them in a crate. Wait, a, can I a, pause a you for a second? It, what does it feel sure. like to be you know, like with your hands on one of these amazing wild things? What does that feel like? It's, it's a pretty amazing thing. The first time you see a wolf in that close-up where you're actually handling and, and holding the wolf is a, is a very amazing thing. They, these animals are asleep, but they're, they're still... You know, they're, they're fully alive. They're, they're fully on, on their own, but their the fur is very thick. We're, we're capturing them in the wintertime when they're in their, their prime coats. Is their, it their soft? Thick winter coats. Are they soft? Uh, well, they, they are soft. It, it's like a big dog. I mean, they, they are big dogs. And, and so it's a, you know, it's a, they've got um, some kind of uh, coarse hairs, but then underneath they've got some guard hairs in there that are um, softer fur as well. They're, oh, wow. they're just, they're, Big, massive animals. How that, big that, are um, they? How, how much do they weigh, typically? Yeah, the, the weight is... Um, the, the, we had a whole range because the animals that we, we got were at different ages and, and different sexes. So the, I think they range from about 70 pounds to about 110 pounds was, was about the biggest animal that we that we moved from, from Oregon to Colorado. Okay, all right. So I, I interrupted you. Sorry. So for those of you, by the way, who are just joining us, this is Colorado Parks Wildlife Wolf Conservation Program Manager Eric O'Dell talking about the reintroduction of the wild wolves to Colorado. So, okay, now you have taken your scientific measurements of these wolves, and then you remind me where we are with this. You put them in a crate. 
Yeah, well, but before that, we put a collar on them because okay. when we release them, all of the animals that we release are going to have a collar that's going to emit a, a signal a and it's also going to use a GPS. A different one than a, the one yes. they had in Oregon. They get new, they get new clothes. Well, the animals that we were capturing did not have collars on them. Oh. We, we, we leave those animals alone so that Oregon can continue to monitor their, their wolves. It's not as though every wolf has a collar on it. It's, only, it's really tough to, to capture wolves. And, and so the, the goal is to try to maintain one or two collars within a pack. And okay. a pack can be anywhere from six to ten animals or okay. sometimes bigger than that. Got it. So now they get a collar and, and they go and you and now you're checking the collar. You'll be able to know where it is all the time and you put it in a crate. Then what? Yep. And then we put it in a crate and then we, we then transported the animals from Oregon to Colorado. And, and generally that that required us to leave the animals overnight in in, those, in these crates. And they're fairly large crates that, that, that are very you know roomy for a wolf. They're still they're still fairly big. Um, and then we uh, used a network of volunteer pilots. So there's an organization called Lighthawk that, that is a, a network of uh, private pilots that donate their flight time and, and allow conservation activities to, to happen. So they, they do lots of programs on different kinds of endangered species and, and recovery efforts. And so Lighthawk pilots donated their time to fly the animals from Oregon back to Colorado. And so uh, what would have been several, uh, you know, o- overnight or full day drive turned into a couple of hour flight. When they arrived at the airport in uh, Colorado, we would load them into the trucks and drive them to the release sites. And it was only a, a matter of, of an hour or so from, from when they landed till when those, those crate doors were opened and the animals were allowed to, to leave their crates and, and to run off into the, the woods of Colorado. Wow. What do they do? When they come out, because if they're using your your accurate diagnosis, they're large dogs. Now they're in a completely new place. They've never been before. Are they released as a group or one at a time? Do they congregate? Do they go off individually? Do they check on each other? What happens when you let them out of the crate? Yeah, great, great questions, and, and a lot of these questions are still to be answered. So they've they've all got these collars on them. We open the doors. Some some wolves are out the door as quick as they can. They they just run out and and don't stop until they're back into the cover of of some some trees and some shrubs and, and things like that. Others took some time to leave their crates. They were they were a bit um, it was very timid, and, and so they. It, just not being in familiar with with where they were once I that would door be. was open. It took yeah, a couple, I mean, imagine yeah. when you land at the airport and they don't even know where their luggage is. They just, well, that's right. Unfortunately, they pack pretty light. They oh, don't. Good. They won't bring a lot of luggage. Oh, is that a pack so, pun? Did you just make a pack yeah, pun at I me? Did. I, 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 unintentionally. Okay. I didn't, that's a good one. All, All right. Like Anyways, so they pack light, so they, and and now they get out of their crates. Maybe they take some. Some take some time. That's like the person who won't get off the plane. They're like looking around. Did I drop any hairpins? Did I? And you're like, why did you buy this ticket? Except they didn't buy the ticket. They've been transported. And now do they seem confused when they come out of the crate? It was really interesting to to watch them them leave, and we have some video on our on our website that you might find really interesting. They they all left the crates, and, and for the most part, they ran up a hill a couple hundred yards, and they all took pretty much the exact same path. There, they, there's just a little two track road that they just found, and, and they would go up. One animal stopped and turned around and, and looked back at us, and then continued off into the hills. And so they all they just kind of 
have this natural inclination to go up the hill and, and to find some close by cover. And, and then they've, they've spent the last several weeks roaming around. Sometimes they're together as, you know, paired up as in animals and then they'll split apart and they do all different kinds of, of behaviors. And so we're, we're still waiting to see what it looks like this spring as, as animals, this is the time of the year when animals would pair and, and breed. And maybe we'll have a litter of pups, a, a den of, of wolf pups this spring, although probably more likely it will be the, the, the subsequent spring, the spring of 2025, is it, wolves typically are born in, in April. And so we'll see if they are successful at, at finding members of the opposite sex and, and hopefully members of different packs, because as I said, the, the packs are typically siblings and, and we don't want that inbreeding. We want animals to, to mix a bit more. And so hopefully they'll, they'll find each other and, and, uh, breed and, and begin to help us establish this population. Do you use trail cams that you can kind of watch the wolves in the area or, I mean, you just don't know where they're going to be. So unless you already have the cameras, maybe you couldn't do that. I, I don't know. Could you? Yeah, it's very much a needle in a haystack kind of a thing. So, so if your camera happens to be set up in a place and, and you know, as you're looking through the, the photos at the end of the, the month or whenever it is that the, those photos are checked and you see a wolf, that, that's one way to, to monitor them. But it's, it's really, you know, we really rely on the callers. Uh, we rely on the um, uh, different kinds of, of flights that we do with our, our airplanes to, to keep eyes and keep tabs on, on the animals. But it's, you know, right now all of the animals that we've released have these collars on them. But as they pair up and as they breed, obviously all of those animals will not have, have collars. The newly born pups will not have collars. And so we'll make efforts through time to, to try to, to do that. And there's a whole bunch of different ways to, to monitor wolves. One is, one is those trail cameras. If we can, if we know of an area where, where wolves frequent, then we can use that to kind of assess how, how many pups were born that particular year, as an example. We can do howling surveys or some other neat kind of uh, mechanisms, tools that are being developed that uh, relatively inexpensively you can deploy and, and have them collect sounds, you know, essentially just noise recorders and, and collect howling sounds and, and use those to run through some computer software to identify the number of animal, animals in, in that pack. And, do and they, so there's do, lots of... I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you, but you've said something really interesting that you're going to try to identify them by their howling. You can identify each wolf has a distinctive howl. Is is that what you're telling me? Well, it's not not exactly. It's it's more to, it's it's much more general than that. I mean, you can kind of tell pups the way pups respond in the way uh, adults respond in, in in that pack. So it's it's more of a, a way we use those howling surveys more to identify where wolves might be, and then we will will spend more intensive time to try to identify. Um, then which individuals are there or, or how many of, of them are there. So it's the howling surveys are more just to identify and locate where where a pack might be using, what, what kind of a territory they might be using. They cover very, very big areas. And so that's that's part of the challenge with the trail cameras is that you put a trail camera out and, and they may come by that area and then not come by it again for several weeks. And, and so it's just, a like I say, a needle on a haystack to, to do that. But that, that, So the howling surveys can help us locate and, and focus where to, to put some of those cameras at certain times of the year. This is so cool. Um, so uh, I'm guessing that some of the release was done in secret so that there wouldn't be gawkers or, heaven forbid, enemies. We just got a... We just got a text saying that um, somebody who listens to the station knew somebody in Wisconsin who was so anti-wolf. I don't even want to tell you what they did. Um, I'm sure you can guess. Uh, and, and there are wolves in northern Wisconsin, Minnesota. Also, I happen 
I happen to know that they're in northern Minnesota because my husband, an outdoorsman, inadvertently... I don't know if he was the one who hit it or the guy in front of him hit it. It was awful. Um, But there, there are quite a few of them up there. So... You release them in um, in Colorado in secret. How long will it be before the general public figures out where they are if they don't already know? Yeah, they 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 do know, and, and we do that. We we are we, we where exactly wolves are released is not really all of that important of a of a point in space. And, and, mm-hmm. and the reason I say that is because these animals move great distances, and so where where they're released is not necessarily where they're going to stay. They they can cover twenty miles in a day, no problem. And so um, we we were very careful about being public. We we certainly did outreach to the local communities to say that, hey, wolves will be released in this general area. We did not provide specific dates and times and locations to protect the wolves and, and so on. But, you know, we did outreach to, to local communities to let them know that this was happening. And, and it was a well-publicized event that, that wolf reintroduction on, on the West Slope was happening. And we knew um, the general time that was going to be in, in December that that was going to happen. And that was publicly known. But we were we were intentionally careful about that because we've made a big investment to in, in capturing these animals, transporting these animals, collaring them, providing them all the vet care that they were given, and you know it's not something that we wanted to have. And then um, for for those of those those that are very much anti wolf, they could take some um, drastic matters measures. Their hands, which, yeah, we don't want that. Good. Yeah. And, and wolves are federally protected, in, both federally and state protected in, in Colorado. So, you know, killing a wolf is is illegal, except for some very uh, specific circumstances relative to livestock depredations. My spouse just texted me to say that he didn't hit the wolf. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, somebody else hit the wolf. Uh, so I just want to make that clear. He's careful. He's very careful. But they're big. They're really big. Um, just with the few seconds that, that we have left, are any of the people who were, were not in favor of the wolves starting to come around and get maybe even a little excited about the wolves? Anybody? I think it's a little fresh. I, I think it, it, it may be a little bit too soon to, to get to get there. I, I certainly haven't had that experience yet, or I haven't heard from, from those that are in that mindset yet. Um, but we'll see. And, you know, I think that the, the, the initial introductions, reintroductions of wolves into Colorado has, has stirred up a lot of emotions. And, you know, I think in time, our, our goal is to have wolves be just one of the other 900 species of wildlife that, that we manage. It's a big challenge and, and we recognize that, but it's, you know, I think that Montana, some of the, the states in the Northern Rockies, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, are are in different phases than they were immediately after their reintroductions. And so we're we're literally just less than a month since the reintroductions have happened. Those other states are decades beyond that time frame and, and getting to, to some of the normalcy that, that so I think you're, you're I will there. live in hope. Thank you so much. I'm going to check back on this. And thank you for, for being so forthright about all of this. It's very exciting. Um, and, and we'll check in with you again. That is Colorado Parks Wildlife Wolf Conservation Program Manager Eric O'Dell. 10 wolves now in Colorado. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Surrey Ryder.
It is the Joan Esposito Show. Joan comes back on Monday. I want to make sure you know that. We'll get to your texts in just a moment. But when someone who is uh, in a high city elected office position can make time to speak with us about such an important topic, I want to get straight ahead to it. You may have heard that just on Saturday, a bus dropped off nearly 40 migrants in Woodstock, Illinois. And and the town did its best, but it can't be easy. As several folks who were interviewed by CBS News said, we're, we're not set up for this. And it sounds like they're trying to make accommodations where they can. Um, and, and the migrants were sent on to Chicago. And what does that you know, what is going on in Woodstock and will this be happening again? And what happens if it does? I'd like to introduce you to Mayor Michael Turner. Welcome to WCPT. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Terry. I appreciate the chance to uh, talk with you. Well, what exactly from your perspective, or as they used to say in, in Watergate language, what did you know and when did you know it? <laughs> well, I, I, I try to stay away from that parallel, but what uh, what I knew is that at 2.30 last Saturday, um, I did get a, uh, I got a text from one of our council members, uh, Melissa McMahon, uh, who had actually spotted a bus and thought it looked uh, somewhat suspicious, uh, you know, or unusual, let's use that term. And, um, and then she quickly learned that it was dropping off uh, some um, a busload of migrants at the train station. Um, that that precipitated calls to our chief city manager and city staff. Uh, we had we had talked about starting in mid December. We had talked about what happens. What are we going to do uh, from a city perspective if if a bus comes into the city and drops off people? And we had talked about different contingencies. We had talked about you know ways to to help those people in the interim while they're they're with us. And it's, we assumed it would be the train station, which it was. Um, and so um, uh, Melissa actually was uh, was on site. Other city staff came there on site. The chief and and some officers came there, not not because there was a security need, but to assist. And we we got the people into our train station so they were warm um, and had access to restrooms. And about that time, it hit social media. There's there's a one a Facebook page that you know kind of is a community type uh, organic page, and uh, it began to kind of hit that. And um, that actually spurred a couple other uh, people into action. Uh, a gentleman. Uh, named Rob Mutert, who runs Warp Corps, which is a uh, social services organization, a private one in Woodstock. Uh, Rob sprung into action. He had uh, some winter clothing that had been donated to Warp Corps, and uh, Rob got that over to the um, to the train station. And then another gentleman, a good, cor- great corporate citizen uh, named Tom Wilson, uh, who has a company called MBI Cares. Um, and Tom jumped into uh, into the mix as well, and he actually went to McDonald's and bought a, a you know few hundred dollars, I assume, worth of hamburgers and food, and brought it to the train station as well. So um, we reacted to it as a city, um, and while we had people in our care, we we did our best to help them out, and the community helped and rose to that occasion. 
Now, I've heard, um, I'm assuming you heard, you know, why don't we build a shelter here from some people and know we need to move people on to where services are better or some version of get them out of here ASAP. Are, are you hearing different things from different segments of the community or is the community pretty united about um, their view that, that the folks need to get on a train and come into Chicago? We, they can't stay. So my general, my, my sense, and we know this because we actually passed a um, our version of a of the bus ordinance. I'll call it that, which is modeled after the Chicago ordinance and the City of Aurora ordinance and others. And we passed that on Tuesday night. And um, you know, it, here here's how I would frame it: is that there was both strong support for that, and there was reluctant support for that. And there were a few naysayers, but the vast majority of feedback that I've got is between that strong support and reluctant support. Support for and, letting them stay or support for moving them on or no, support for, for providing? For, I'm not sure what is support and what is against. Yeah, sorry. When I talk about the bus ordinance, I'm talking about that that we really don't want drop-offs here. We believe that Chicago is best um, positioned to, um, to be able to handle and manage um, migrants. We are not. As a city of 25,000 people, we don't have the staff, we don't have the money, we don't have the expertise to manage uh, to manage folks in a you know a medium term or long term uh, kind of situation. And so you know Chicago has that; they have the relationship with the state and the federal federal governments. And so we feel it's appropriate, you know, to discourage buses from uh, unscheduled drop-offs, and we think it was the right thing to move folks along. But by no means was it ideal. What if, this is a what if, um, what if the, there were a more organized effort and um, the buses called ahead? Would it be conceivable if there were money available? Would it be conceivable that the town has an empty building and with social services? Are there businesses that need workers if these folks could get work permits? Is there housing available? Just in an ideal situation, assuming the governor of Texas isn't using these folks like, you know, human human political statements, which I happen to believe he is, if he actually handled this in in a respectful way for your town and said, you know, we want to send folks in every different place where there's work for them and where the, where the town can physically accommodate them, could Woodstock accommodate people if there were federal money to feed them and clothe them? Is there work for them to do? Is there maybe an empty uh, building where they could safely be housed while they integrated into the community? How could that look? So uh, it's a laudable thought, but in reality, do I think that's do I think that's practically possible? I don't at this stage. Um, it'd be difficult for me to see that. Um, we don't have the relationship with the federal government or the state government to get the money. Even if we had the money, we don't have the staff or the expertise to to manage that. Huh. And so I have to take I have to take in my role, I think, a practical approach. I have to gauge what the community wants, but also take a practical approach. So while what you're describing is the ideal, I just don't think a city of our size has the ability to uh, do that. So I'd be concerned about committing to that. I see. Because it was 40 people. I mean, I would have I've heard people say that if if every community could take 40, 
people or 50 people, this wouldn't be a, a problem. Uh, I understand that it sounds like it's a, a real strain on the system. I have to push back a little bit when you say Chicago can handle it. I live in Chicago. I'm seeing people outside of every grocery store. I'm seeing people walk down my street, whole families holding, you know, giant plastic bags of of clothing. It, it's not going so well here either. Um, yeah. So, so. Uh, I, I don't know what to say. There seems to be this idea, well, oh, Chicago can handle, we can handle everything. Uh, maybe not. So I guess what I'm, I'm poking around to see is, you know, what would be a number that Woodstock might be able to support if, if every other community stepped up and did the same? Yeah, in conjecture, I, you know, I'm sure that number exists. I don't know what it is. But it would have to be it would it, it would have to be capped out and uh, and that would have to be be it. And you know what? The city of Woodstock as a city, we don't have the social service expertise or arm or budget. But most important is, OK, if you say, well, we get money, then right. I, I don't have the people I don't have the people or the or the expertise. To, uh, well, to presumably, presumably, with the money comes the capacity to to, to hire people. Um, that would be, I would assume, what some of the money would be for. I mean, I had here on the show the head of the immigration judges union. I had no idea there was such a thing, <laughs> and here he was on the air talking to me about the need to fund these immigration courts so that people can get their cases adjudicated, stay or go, get work permits if they're legally entitled to get them. And and that takes money. So some of the money that will have to be budgeted for these folks, if if they keep coming, and I, I'm not seeing any sign that they're stopping anytime soon, um, presumably the money wouldn't just be for clothing and McDonald's. Presumably the money would be so that you could have a department that would support people while they integrated into the community. But it sounds like you don't believe that that would be feasible even if that happened. Is is that what I'm hearing? I'm, I would be very reluctant to commit to that at this point. I'd have, but you know what? It's my job to be open-minded as well, but also to be cautious. So if you hear me going down the middle on it, you know, I'm not, I, there's, I'm not going to commit to that because I'm not sure we could, uh, I'm not sure what it would look like and how we could, how we could pull it off. But you would Somebody be, showed me what, yes, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> It's not it's not just a money thing. It's an expert expertise thing as well. And it's not just a matter of saying, oh, there's an empty building. Let's put people in there. It's it's far more complex than that. Um, well, clearly, and I'm not. Yes, I'm yeah. not claiming that I'm not claiming Chicago can, you know, can easily handle it by any stretch. Definitely not. I completely understand why Mayor Johnson is trying to to limit, uh, you know, buses coming into the city. I understand why he passed the uh uh, pass that bus ordinance. I'm empathetic for it. Well, and now you have one of your own. Um, I'm just curious, like, what, what is your fine when the, if these buses pull in? And can you impound a bus? Because I'm just really looking forward to seeing all these buses and all these planes <laughs> just sort of sitting with whatever the equivalent. Do you, do you boot cars in Woodstock? They boot them in Chicago. We do not. You do not. I no, wonder what the don't. equivalent of a boot would look like on one of those buses or one of those uh, private planes. I am looking forward to seeing that. That's what I want. You you fly these people in and you tell them they're in. By the way, what had the people been told? Did you have anyone who could speak to them and ask them where they thought they were, what they thought was going to happen to them? And did they have any kind of warm clothing? What, what was the situation when they got off the buses? What did you see there? Yes. 
So, so, um, so what I heard from, um, from folks who were there, including my police chief is that, um, is that, you know, no, they were not well equipped for, for cold weather. So the, the, you know, the, the donations and the offering of the coats and, and, and gloves and things like that were incredibly well received and they were very, very thankful. Um, these folks had been traveling, you know, for upwards of nine months, primarily Venezuelan and some from Colombia is what I, is what I learned, you know, so, um, they were not equipped um, for, for that. And so, you know, we worked to help them at the time that, that they were, you know, in Woodstock uh, to see, you know, we, we recognize, I recognize that, you know, these are human beings, you know, that are taking desperate steps. Um, and, um, and I empathize with that as well. Did, did they tell you, first of all, did anybody on your staff speak Spanish? Could anyone actually have a conversation with them when they got off the bus? So it was limit, and, and I'm sorry, you also asked that. So limited, limited Spanish to my knowledge of the people who were there, but I don't know everybody who was there, so it's possible. But they did have a chaperone. A guide was with them huh. um, who, who was part of the group. And that guide had already purchased uh, Metro train tickets. Um, with and and they got on the train. It's my understanding, if I recall right, and, and it was correctly told to me that they actually um, they actually were on the train um, going down to uh, going down to Chicago with that group. So, and then we in turn, yeah. So we in just to, to finish a thought, we in turn had worked with and had pre pre discussed this with the county, McHenry County. Um, uh, EMA, that's our Office of Emergency Management, and they in turn contacted and ha- and were coordinating with the Chicago uh, OEMC, I believe is the organization, to, to make sure somebody was down there to receive these folks. So we did take some step there to at least get them uh, connected once they were in Chicago as well. And there was a guide with them. So, uh, and, and I want to continue this conversation in a moment if you can, can hang on, but it, it sounds from what you're yeah. telling me that they didn't notify you that the bus was coming. They knew where they were going. They knew the train schedule. So they're clearly planning to do this. They're just not giving you the courtesy of of giving you the opportunity to put your best foot forward, do the best. I mean, it sounds like you did the best you could have under the circumstances, but they could have made the circumstances a whole lot easier for you. So while they're booting buses, I'd like them to arrest the driver and the guide while they're at it. But that's just me. Can you hold on a moment? Mayor? Thank you. Thank you. More of Mayor Michael Turner of Woodstock, which found itself in temporary possession of a bus full of migrants just this past Saturday on WCPT. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Turi Ryder. Just about 421. I am Tori in for Joan. Joan's back Monday. We are joined by Mayor Michael Turner of Woodstock, Illinois. A charming town. I've been there. Very pretty. Um, and they were the, I guess, surprise recipients of a bus containing 37 to 40, somewhere in that number of migrants from Venezuela, Colombia, sent from Texas. And they came, what time, what time, Mayor, did the bus pull in? You said it was nighttime? No, 2.30 in the afternoon. Oh, 2.30 in the afternoon. I'm sorry, I misheard. Uh, So 2.30 in the afternoon, and they they show up. They're not adequately clothed. They have a guide. Someone someone knows there's going to be a train station. Someone gets them on the train and continues with them. Yes, my my from what I was told is that the that chaperone or guide 
uh, did go with them. So let me just ask you, whatever your views may be on immigration and the border, I'm guessing this has to be a, a, a little bit shocking to the soul to actually have this happen in your town. And and I'm guessing there must have been at some level an emotional response for you. What 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 were those feelings and how did it how did it feel to see this bus pull up with real live people getting out of it in the wrong kind of clothing for the weather with no real idea where they were being herded more or less like, you know, un, unwitting chattel here. At least that's my vision of it. What was yours? Yeah. So um, I uh, I want to make sure and clarify, I was not on scene when it happened, but in talking to the folks that were there, what I did hear is that there was an emotion to uh, to this situation, that there was a thankfulness on the part of the people that were dropped off there and that they were clearly in need. So, you know, you know, my police officers, I heard that from them. I heard it from uh, Councilwoman Melissa McMahon, who was there. I heard it from, um, you know, from the gentlemen who were helping out, Rob and, and, um, and Tom. And I heard it, that there was this emotion and this realization that these are, you know, these are real people and that they're in a pretty desperate situation. And I, I share that. I mean, I, you know, there's no way that we could be looking at ordinances or, you know, political positions and all that. I don't think you can, you can, divorce yourself or you sure as heck shouldn't divorce yourself from the fact that these are real people so what do you think we should be doing in illinois writ large if you had a magic wand what what (laughs) can we i mean because i have to tell you as someone who lives in chicago and you know i come out of jewel and there's a family and i drive to the radio station and there's a woman with two little kids and I, i i am really at a loss. I mean, I have a small plan for next week for getting some clothing together for people, but I, I, I'm, I'm just kind of, as they used to say where I grew up, dead laid out. I have no idea what to do. Your thoughts? Yeah. Uh, well, a couple things. One is that um, when, we make, when I'm making decisions here as mayor, I do it based upon the interest of the city of Woodstock. We, we as, a, as a city council... And as a city, I don't want to get dragged into into national politics and national immigration policy. I have an opinion on it. I'll share that with you in a second, at least on some of the things that I think need to be, to be done, because, you know, I know you, you want to hear it. And that's fine. I'm glad to offer it up. But at the same time, the way we govern here is we govern very, very practical, nonpartisan. And we, you know, we we really make that part of who we are as a city. And I think that that's what makes us a, a great community and very you know, very well run. What I want to see, I, immigration is core to this country. It always has been, and it probably and should always will be. And it really doesn't matter where you're coming from. We have a heavy Latino community here, meaning a large number, 35 plus percent, and they are a fantastic part of our diverse, diverse community. And so I don't begrudge people that are coming up from any part of the country, but particularly Central America, for them wanting to come and, you know, and make their life in the, in the United States. What I don't like is I don't like the chaotic, unmanaged approach right now. I think that is a mistake. Okay. And I've said it's a mistake for multiple years. And I was concerned that at some point, particularly when the buses started flowing, that we in fact would have to get touched by it a, a little, a little bit. And we have, and by no means are we similar to what's happening in the city of Chicago or, or elsewhere. But the unmanaged nature of, of a flow of people across our border doesn't make sense. 
There's no other border in the in, in the world for you know most countries. You cannot cross the way that that you're able to cross down there. We need to have resources to manage the process better at the border. Yeah, I think that it, it weirdly um, the the exact phrase you used is now starting to resonate on every political spectrum like we need at, at the very least no matter how many people we decide should come shouldn't come no matter what the the terms of our agreement to um, bring people in the chaos is, is and, and it and it transcends one particular administration in my opinion the, this there has been no good effort at the border no workable solution at the border now for several administrations I, I would I would say um, and it, it's going to get worse. Um, so I, I appreciate your forthrightness and I appreciate the citizens of, of Woodstock coming forward to do what they felt they could do. What are you going to do if another bus shows up? Of course, our ordinance. It's not a paper ordinance, okay? It's it's there for a reason. We don't, you know. I, we, I'm sorry. We, the beginning of your sentence got swallowed up in some phone phone something or other. You're going to enforce your okay. o- o- ordinance? You said. I'm sorry. Yeah, we we will enforce our ordinance. It's not a paper ordinance. It's there for a purpose, okay? We do not want un unscheduled drop offs and for this situation to occur. That said, if it were to happen again. If we if we can't do anything about the bus doing it, or even if we can, if people get dropped off, we will deal with the bus separately, and we will deal with the people humanely as we did previously uh, with the same you know the same plan and approach that we that we had before. So, are, so, are your you police know, and, and allowed under this ordinance to arrest the driver? Because I really want to see, I really want to see a bus with a boot on it, and I really want to see a town going. You know what? That's a nice I, bus. We could use that bus. I like that uh, bus. That bus is pounding, ours now. Yes. In, impounding is is absolutely part of the ordinance as our as our fine and so yeah we we would we would take that step but you know our goal here is to our goal is is the same as chicago we're trying to limit this this approach and and force hopefully our little action and everybody else in in illinois and elsewhere is forcing a better discussion about the fact that a solution is needed at the border that manages this so that the burden the burden on Arizona, New Mexico and Texas is not as great as it is and the burden on, you know, New York, Chicago, Denver, etc. is not as great as it is. We have to solve this. I'm going to put you on the spot just a little bit. Um, do, okay. do you think that Governor Abbott is doing this in the best way possible? And if, if you had a private little meeting, like a cup of coffee with Governor Abbott, what, what would you say to the governor of Texas? Um, so, you know, you heard me say that I empathize with the with the mayor of Chicago, and I likewise empathize with the strain and what's going on in uh, in Texas. I empathize with Governor Abbott in the situation down there because it is even more magnified, or it's, it's more greater, a greater magnitude of 
of, um, of problems for his state in trying to manage the situation. And I think he feels, you know, I think he feels abandoned or, you know, doesn't agree with what the federal government is doing. I can't jump, you know, I, I'm not equipped to, and able to jump into the discussion with a, with a magic wand that may be perfect. But I sure think it needs to be better than it's currently being managed at the federal level. Well, do you not think that it would be reasonable for Governor Abbott to make the same point and yet let people know these buses were coming? It, that, to me, that, that is the height of cruelty is if the city of Chicago says we have a landing pad and we have people here and all we ask is that you let us know, which is really at this point what they're asking. And Governor Abbott's response is basically, screw you, I'm going to send these people and on purpose I'm not going to tell you when they're coming. Um, That seems to me to fly in the face of what you're describing. These are human beings. And at the Mm -hmm. very least, if you let the city know that they're coming, there are willing people who will meet them with, as your city did, with food and with clothing. Uh, That's the part that sticks in my craw. I I really I understand he's frustrated. I lived in California for many years and I've seen what it looks like to have people running across your highway with with bundles. And it's it's not it's nobody's perfect situation. But what sticks in my craw is this whole idea of not only can we not handle this, we can organize a bus, we can pay the driver, we can find a guide, we can buy the tickets, but somehow we can't find it in our hearts to tell you when the bus will show up. And and that yeah. seems very cynical and cruel to me. But uh, am I wrong? I think that's I I think that's a fair observation, but I would be interested to hear what the what the governor of Texas would have to say about that. It's a fair question, without a doubt. Well, I, I commend you for being open and honest, and, and I hope it goes well for you in Woodstock. And some folks are, are sending various thoughts over the chat, but one was, blessings to the people of Woodstock for honoring the Christmas story. Um, recall Joseph and Mary, uh, Jesus in a manger and no room at the inn. So that's the second part of that. But they do <laughs> they do want to acknowledge that, that at least uh, the people did what they they felt they could, and, and I appreciate your time here today. So thank you. No, my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Terry. All right. Mayor Michael Turner of Woodstock, Illinois, you've heard how they handled it. You heard how they plan to handle it. And uh, you can form your opinions about it. In a moment, uh, we will be speaking with someone who Paul Shavari across the, the console from me said, oh, Stephanie Zimmerman, she helped me with my money. Maybe you made a financial resolution. Um, we're going to talk about how you can maybe implement some parts of that. Uh, if if you are in a consumer bit of a pickle, we'll talk to her in just a moment on WCPT. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Filling in today for Joan, radio personality and author, Terry Ryder. Oh, sweet. 435, I am Tori Ryder. Patty Vasquez in at 5 to drive you home. Jones back Monday. Maybe your New Year's resolution around money was, you know, I'm going to complain. I have been hard done by a business and I... I am, in, in the words of the old movie network, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Stephanie Zimmerman of the Sun-Times wrote a column about how to complain. And uh, it, it caught our attention. 
Uh, probably one of the reasons it caught my attention is I am an expert complainer. My friends stick me on the phone to complain on their behalf, but not everybody's a good complainer, which is why you're not all talk show hosts. Stephanie Zimmerman, welcome to WCPT. Thank you for your, your work and your column. And Paul, my engineer, thanks you for helping him get his bumped flight money back many years ago. Well, thanks for having me on, Tori. I appreciate it. So this is the new year, and we've been hearing about airlines that malfunctioned over the holidays, and we're hearing about businesses going under because of COVID, and somewhere in there is the consumer. Um, So assuming that the problem that you're having is with a business that's still functioning, um, what what do you do to start? And if you're a business and then you're on the receiving end of one of these complaints, um, I know that the customer is always right can somehow sometimes be really, really hard for the business because sometimes the customer's not. So you can start anywhere. And, and would you kindly like <laughs> tease out this problem for us? Yeah, you know, um, well, I've been doing consumer reporting for 30 years, so I feel like I've heard just about every horror story imaginable. And I, I think a lot of people don't, don't know where to start. And then I think some people have the obstacle of just getting really angry and really emotional about it. Um, they are, they're not organized. You have to, you have to put, set aside your emotion. You have to realize that whoever you're talking to with this business is probably not the person who screwed it up for you. Right. So, so, so be professional. I, I always tell people before you set out to fight a consumer battle, sit down and write out a narrative of what happened and include a timeline and, and get all your, get all your ducks in a row and keep it concise. You know, it doesn't have to be war and peace. You should really <laughs> just stick to the facts, keep the emotion out of it. And then, um, and then when you approach the business, you really want to be a professional, like I said, and you also want to, um, Give them a pathway forward. So you want to provide them with the desired resolution. Like, this is how you guys screwed me over, but this is the solution that will make me happy. And give them a deadline. And that way you can have, you know, you have to do that first anyway before you were to take it to another level. And we could talk about that because there's plenty of help out there for consumers. But um, but you want to just give them a, a clear path forward. And if you're speaking with somebody on the phone, I find that the the word we can be very helpful because it forces the the business into your circle. You know, what can we do to solve this? Um, so those are all, and that's all, of course, assuming that the business is not a complete scam or the company owner is not a jerk. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's, that's like a the big best assumption. That's yes. where you start. Yes, because <laughs> so as, you start you start with that. And we've all we've all had that moment where we realize, you know, they 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 don't care. This is part of their business model. You know, they, there is a particular airline. So I I would add to what you're saying is if you go online, you can see if this company has a practice of doing this kind of thing all the time. Um, and, and if they do, we can circle back to that in a minute. I'm thinking of a particular small airline that apparently just it's, it's small enough that they don't give a rip. Um, 
<laughs> uh, it's very small airline, and this is part of their business model. We're we're gonna we're gonna screw a lot of people a lot of the time, but we're the cheapest, and most of the time it goes okay. And when it doesn't, we're gonna do absolutely nothing about it because they're already cheap people, and we're already the cheapest thing that's out there. So, do you do you run into businesses where? You know, part of the business model is that people are furious a lot of the time, but they come back because it's the cheapest option. Well, I mean, yeah, you're you're right that there are some companies where customer service is not exactly valued. And that's where and, and if they have a pattern of deceptive business practices, there's a whole other way to attack that because there are laws, consumer protection laws that can help with that. And that's where, you know, we can talk a little bit about places out there to get help, but that's where you'd want to be going to, like, the attorney general or something like that. If it's a flat-out practice of deception, um, I, you know, it's funny. There's there's some companies that are renowned for their customer service. They really will empower these these, you know, these people that have this horrible job of taking all these complaints, they will empower them to, to make the person happy. Um, there are others where it's like the, the customer service is almost erected as a wall to prevent you from getting any help. And in that case, um, there's a couple, if you feel like it's, it's, if the company owner only knew what was happening, there's a couple of ways to attack that. I always tell people if it's a publicly traded company, Google is your friend. You can Google the company name and the words investor relations, and you can find whoever's job it is to find investors for this big, huge publicly traded company and send your thing to that person. Even if they're not in, in um, customer service, if you're really hitting a wall, those investor relations people, they tend to hop to it because they don't want um, the company to look bad and they will oftentimes escalate it. The other trick with a non-publicly traded company is to, it's, not, it's crazy, but a lot of people do it, get the ear of the, of the president of the company, especially if it's a smaller or local operation. Um, you know, and then you can, you can also um, enlist a lot of other tools like um, tagging them in social media and stuff like that, trying to use shame if you need to, to, to get them to act. But I mean, but if it's like, if it's a company and I'm thinking of um, some of the like low rent, uh, really tiny car insurance companies, uh, those have a high complaint history because you get the feeling that they're making their money just by delaying the claims forever. Um, you know, then I think you need to go take it up a step and go to one of the regulators of that industry and get some help. So there there are, um, you and I agree, there are companies that their basic philosophy of business is Hope they go away, stall, and hope they go away, um, and and that happens. But I loved what you said before about um, approaching in a rational way, not a big long narrative. Understanding that the person you're talking to isn't the person who made the problem, and then being very clear that you're not just calling to vent spleen. You're calling because there is a way to make you happy, and it's a reasonable way to make you happy. Um, I think a lot of people miss that element. They, they're just upset. They're just angry. They may be absolutely right to be upset and angry, but if the person on the other, other end doesn't know what they can do, likely you're talking to some minimum wage person, maybe not even in this country, maybe not even with English as a first language, 
they don't know what they can do except say over and over like a broken record, you know, well, I'm sorry. And it does seem that customer relations now consists of apologizing for everything from the music on hold to the fact that they've just, you know, accidentally vacuumed hundreds of dollars out of your credit card and they don't know how to put it back. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and you know, going back to what I said initially, you really have to take the emotion out of it. You know, you, we've, all seen, we've all seen people at the airport just, like, screaming at somebody at the ticket counter. Like, yeah, that you know, is not that useful. Person, you know, God love that poor person at the ticket counter, right? They have to take that all day long, that kind of yelling. And, and, and I think that you, I mean, I guess the way I always approach it um, is that you give them a shot, you know, you give them a shot to do the right thing. And then if, if they won't, the nice thing about having handled it professionally and provided a solution with a deadline and the deadline's important. Like I want you to address this within the next two weeks or whatever, right? Then you have something measurable. And if they don't do it by then, when you go to another agency or you go to the better business bureau with that, complaint, you already are, you know, you look like you were the person who was in the right. So that can be really helpful. Let's talk about the Better Business Bureau, because as far as I can tell, they're a toothless dog. What, What exactly can the Better Business Bureau do for you? You know, I actually disagree. I think, well, okay, first of all, we should let the listeners know if they don't already that that's a, a nonprofit. There are people still out there who think that the Better Business Bureau is like a government agency. They are not. They're just, um, they're just a nonprofit, but they've been around for like a hundred years or something, right? Um, and, and they are not perfect as any, any, you know, nonprofit advocacy or membership organization is. However, um, they're, they're pretty good and pretty transparent about um, posting things on their website. Like, for example, I'm writing about a company this weekend that, you know, they gave them a D rating and you can go and click on there and you can read all of the tons of complaints that this particular company has gotten. And they, they will post those unfiltered, which is really kind of nice. Don't the wait, wait, hold, hold up a minute. Oh. Hold up a minute. Doesn't that company have to be a member of the Better Business Bureau for them to rate the company? And and conversely, if the company is a member of the Better Business Bureau, would they ever give them a bad rating if they're a member? Yeah, I've asked that question many times. They actually have um, kicked people out. Um, they don't, they don't call it a membership. They call it accreditation, but you know, splitting hairs, whatever. But they say, um, and they, they have done this. They have kicked out, um, paying accredited, uh, businesses. They've kicked them out of their accreditation, but they remain on the site. And there are plenty of businesses that were never an accredited, uh, you know, a paying accredited, uh, business that went through that process that are still on that site. They have thousands of businesses on that site. Some of the scummiest businesses ever are on there and they'll have like, no, but they'll have like an F rating. They'll have an F rating. Sometimes they'll put an alert on there saying, you know, we've gotten a pattern of terrible complaints. They also, um, interestingly, work pretty closely, at least in Illinois, with the Attorney General's Office and the Federal Trade Commission. So when they, because oftentimes the Better Business Bureau 
know, because that's the thing that, you know, many people kind of have in their head, like I'm going to go to the BBB. So if they start to see a pattern of complaints, like, for example, these, you know, they used to be everywhere, these free trials, you know, if you get the free trial of whatever it is, like the Columbia Record Club, the Columbia Record Club. uh, Yeah, I know. I feel like I still owe money from that, like 30 years ago from Uh, when uh, I was a kid. Right. Yeah. But um, no, but uh, (laughs) but uh, but no, like other things like, you know, whatever, cosmetics or whatever those trial periods are. And there were all these people getting sucked into them and then you couldn't cancel and they had your credit card. So they would find they're oftentimes the canary in the coal mine for those kinds of patterns. And they will um, go to the actual uh, law enforcement regulator folks and they can bring um, they can bring a big you know case against these companies. So I think it is actually, you know, like, you know, like I said, no place is perfect, but I think it is worth um, worth making a complaint to the Better Business okay, Bureau. Well, on your say will... so, on your say so, I will reconsider. <laughs> but let's okay. So let's move to the next thing, which is, I have two next things. The first next thing before I forget, because my brain's a sieve, is what if your problem is with a, a public company or utility or something like that. Um, And then my second thought that I wanted to put out there is, is it not often helpful to have a good credit card that will advocate for you? So in any order, those two things. Okay. The answers are yes and yes. Um, Credit card first. Yes. You should always use your credit card for those, you know, any major purchase or, um, any online purchase, don't ever use your debit card and never set up the auto pay on a debit card. Do all that stuff on a credit card. The reason being you have much stronger protections under the law and under the you know banking policies so that you can dispute a charge that's wrong. Um, so, for example, if you did not know you were on an auto renew for some kind of wild subscription and they stuck you on there anyway and they hit your card, you can dispute that and you have some rights. So definitely credit. Um, the second question about if you have a problem with a publicly regulated utility, the best, well, there's a couple places you could go. You could You could go to the Illinois Commerce Commission. That's the ICC. They regulate... Um, like the gas company, um, they regulate uh, electric and all of those weird alternative energy suppliers. And I have a story coming out um, shortly in the Sun-Times about some of those companies. They also regulate tow trucks, which are, um, they fall under the purview of the Illinois Commerce Commission. So oh, my gosh. Wait, wait. I have these, to just stop yeah, you for yeah, a second. Yeah, one of these guys gets. Get you I, got to complain to the ICC. I live right near where the old Lincoln Park Pirates garage is. Oh, no. And I, uh-huh. I have friends who are opera fans. They love to see the passion, the drama, people dying in slow motion with knives sticking out. If you want to see real drama and theater, Saturday night about 11, 12 o'clock, stop by any of those towing companies. And what you will see is better than any opera ticket on the planet. People <laughs> whose cars like they they literally walked across the street to get money to buy the thing of the parking lot that they were in to, to patronize the business of the parking lot the parking lot doesn't mm-hmm. care if you went across the street to get money to come back to the parking lot to shop at the business whose parking place you were in your car is immobile it's it's amazing yeah. it's amazing yeah you know what 
you are right, and you should never, ever, like, step even an inch off of their property because they have people, those lots that have some of these companies as their as their tower, they have spotters watching. And so you can't even, yeah, you can't, I've heard so many stories like that. I actually was, I actually played a bit part in one of those operas many years ago when my um, then boyfriend's car was towed and we ended up at Lincoln Towing and, and, you know, talking to the guy through the bulletproof glass yep. and all that. You <laughs> know, yeah, it's how drama. you're not really a Chicagoan until you or someone you're in a car with has, has ended up there at least once. Okay. But back to the, <laughs> Back to the ICC, uh, that's where you send all your... Do they really do... I mean, as far as... Again, as far as I can tell, they do bupkis. Well, what do they do? No, well, you know, some of some of these agencies will actually help people with their individual problems. They'll do that, and they'll also look for patterns. So, um, so I, my, my sort of philosophy on all of this is... If, if you really feel you were wronged as a consumer, you should shout it from the rooftops because not only will you maybe get your money back, but you'll also be setting down a marker of this thing that happened. And it's like, it's like uh, little driplets of water that form a rushing river. Like at some point with all these people complaining about the same thing, regulators are and, and consumer protection officials are forced to take action. So I'm a big proponent of complaining. Um, and, and, and actually, I, should, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that um, in our new money section at the Sun-Times, we have a, a, this story about how to complain. Our wonderful um, audience well, that's, that's created, why you're sitting has created here. little... You're, you're well, sitting yeah, here created. because of the how to complain. So, yeah, we are aware <laughs> yeah. of your how to complain. So, right, right. But I got to tell you what she did. She created these little buttons. So now when you go in the story, there's a red button. And if you want to click over and, and get to the Illinois Attorney General's office, boom, you get right there. So um, so I think it's great to complain. I think, you know, for example, the, the Attorney General's office, they do have consumer advocates on staff, and many times they're able to get money back for people simply by sending a, a letter to the business on the letterhead of, you know, the Illinois Attorney General. And the if the business is not like an outright complete scammer, oftentimes that is enough to get them to sit up and notice that they have an unhappy customer and refund their money. So but, but let, like let me before, ask you, it also if, helps for if, if, if the business is really just outright scammers and like this is their business model, is there anything that someone who's been is snookered by one of those companies can realistically do, or does it just have to, you're screwed and the guy after you is screwed and the next 50 people are also screwed. And by the time you get to the 60th person, maybe there's a case. Yeah. I mean, if it was a company that was set up with the explicit purpose of just screwing people over, you're probably the chances of you seeing your money back or, or the bulk of your money back are probably pretty low, but it's still, I mean, if you uh, are a good citizen and feel for the next person, it's still worth complaining. Like I've seen, for example, the federal trade commission, which has its Midwest region is headquartered here in Chicago. The FTC takes complaints. The FTC is not going to help 
you tarry with your individual problem, most likely, unless you're part of a larger class of people who all got ripped off and they're going to try to freeze the bank accounts of this horrible entity that yes, did and, this. and everybody will However, get 18 cents. We'll and all everybody be will part. get 18 yes. cents. Right. <laughs> but, but they might not be able to help you, but they can... They can um, take a, a blanket action. I've seen it many times. Like they'll go after the robocallers or they'll go after the old boiler rooms that used to try to um, get, you know, uh, elderly people to invest in some kind of garbage investment, things like that. They will do that, but they can't really do it unless they know about it, unless they see the patterns and see the stuff. So I still think it's it's worth complaining about. Also, I'm a big fan of the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, that is under constant fire by some people, and I don't really understand why, other than, you know, the banking industry, because that is an entity at the federal level that will not only help you as an individual consumer, but again, they kind of build these patterns, and they see, like, for example, when Wells Fargo is creating these fake accounts and, and, and ripping people off, the CFPB only knew about it because people complained. So that's why I'm a big proponent. So of you, you have to do it for the greater good. You have to enlist your spirit of altruism and uh, yes. and say, I'm never going to see this 65 bucks again. But for the sake of the the sake of everybody else, this is where you get to test and see if you truly are in it for the people. So, okay. All right. I, I'm, I think you are so much more optimistic than I am. You are just so much more optimistic than I am. And I, I don't know. Well, and, Maybe, and I have to, yes, yes. I have to ask your listeners, uh, the optimists and the pessimists out there, we are always looking for money ideas. So money at suntimes.com is our new email address for this new thing we've just launched. And we've done a lot of listening sessions all around Chicago in all kinds of neighborhoods, listening to folks, small business owners, um, you know, trying to make it in the city, um, consumers, um, seniors, all kinds of folks who have shared their money problems, and we want to hear about them at money, money at funtimes.com. Well, you are doing, I, I believe, the Lord's work there, so um, thank you for <laughs> doing that, and I I think, like, if I had to give one piece of advice, it would be make a friend like me, and I will make their <laughs> lives quietly and politely, always quietly and politely, a silent living hell until they do what you want. And even I, <laughs> even I do not always win, as witnessed by my kid who got turned around over midway and flown right back to Canada for no particular, oh. yeah, until a wrong airport, too, was a good one. Oh, um, no. Yeah, oh. I know. They, t- they sent everybody back to a different airport and then made them claw and fight and race to get back to the original airport. And then they told everybody, no, too bad. Sorry, you can go in two weeks. So that particular, oh. it was, yeah. No good, Skate. But you know what? Again, you know, you have to look sometimes, you have to look yourself in the eye as a consumer and say, if you're me, I'm a really cheap person. I could have done this by spending money on a company that actually gave a rat's tail about customer service. But instead, over the long haul, I have saved hundreds of dollars and one time we got screwed. And it's kind of like uh, roulette. 
You just, you just agree. You know, you're going to throw, it's like when you move, you know, a certain, and movers, oh gosh, the worst customer service relations in, in the universe once they have your stuff. But you have to assume when you move that there's a moving God and they will take something as a sacrificial offering and it's pointless. <laughs> just pointless to try and get compensated for it or find it it was the, it was the price you paid for getting the rest of your stuff there so i and so if if you really want to do the right thing contact stephanie at money at sometimes and if you just want to feel better then contact me does that work <laughs> does that work for that you sounds stephanie? like a good that sounds like a great plan. It's a plan. Thank you so much for being with me today. You you are my last guest of the two weeks, and I, I'm really glad it was you. So thank you. Oh, good. Well, thanks for having me on. And thanks for doing what you do. And thank you to everybody for listening. It's just about 5 o'clock. Patty Vasquez is next. Joan returns on Monday. We are live, local, and progressive. WCPT.